Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Love Talk Radio.
you know, we've we've made some progress. We've made quite a bit of progress. So, you know, I just want you guys to know how much we do appreciate you and how much we do enjoy the emails. We do enjoy meeting you at these various um you know, events. You know, I don't always get to all the events but when the people that I know and I advertise for the events, they usually call and tell me that, oh, someone said that they heard about this from the podcast. So, you know, that that's lovely. That's beautiful. So please keep reaching out like that. We appreciate it. Keep listening in. Spread the word. We appreciate it. And so for those of you that missed the Moving Social Justice Conference a month ago, you missed it. You missed it, but that's okay because we have a DVD coming out. As a matter of fact, um, yesterday I posted the video trailer. I didn't post it. Dr. Hutchinson did, and she tagged me. And so I'm going to post it later on today. But we have the DVD trailer out and get some clips of um, some of the speeches and some of the talks, you know, at the conference. And you'll get a chance to kind of listen in and, and see a few points, but it was a beautiful time. We really had a good time. We're looking forward to being in Houston next year, and we're telling everybody start putting your coins away now. We're looking forward to seeing you and you and you too, and it's just it's been exciting. This past year has been very exciting. Uh, FYI, we will be doing a webcast next week. So next week at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, which is noon Central Standard Time, we will be um, basically webcasting live on YouTube. So look out for that. I have to create the link for that and get everything set up so that you all will know uh, what's happening. But we will be talking about a number of issues, um, but mainly it will be about you know, normalizing free thought, normalizing secularism, normalizing atheism in a country that's predominantly religious and basically paralleling what's happening in the atheist community to what's happening or what has happened in the LGBT community in which is, you know, um, basically for white males to reestablish their dominance and get their regular white guy status. This is just it's really interesting because, you know, what a lot of people don't understand is with the LGBTQ movement, it was, you know, marriage is about contracts. It always has been about contracts. And, you know, that's why it's called a marriage contract. And for the most part, it was about people being able to leave their wealth um, to their significant others, their partners, their husbands, wives, spouses, you know, however you determine, you know, your significant other, and being able to, for that significant other to have rights to visit them in a hospital, to have the right to make decisions, and, you know, the things that, you know, heterosexual couples have the ability to do. And that's absolutely wonderful. One of the questions that I have is why is it that married people have these particular special privileges? Single people should have that option as well because, unfortunately, when you're single and you have no children, you're pretty much kind of sailing down the river with one oar, so, you know, which means you're probably going in circles. So, you know, it's just really interesting how we need to start 
reevaluating some things and looking at things, you know, from a different, you know, perspective and looking at it from a broad perspective. So, you know, again, um, you know, it should be a really good webcast next week. On Sunday, December 7th, we will have a webcast. It will be Dr. Hutchison. It will be Donald Wright, Raina Rhodes, Jen Taylor, and myself. And so that will be a Q&A, a question and answer session. So if you have any questions, you can email us, blackskeptics at gmail.com. Again, that's blackskeptics at gmail.com. Or you can email us at peopleofcolorbeyondfaith at gmail.com. Again, that's peopleofcolorbeyondfaith at gmail.com. Send us your questions. We'll answer all the questions, uh, comments. We'll take everything into consideration. And we will tell you what moving social justice is about, what it means to us, how it came about. So we're really looking forward to that webcast, and we're looking forward to interacting with all of you guys. So like I said, you know, next year is Houston, Texas. Do not miss it. I'm telling you guys, do not miss it. You know, this was our first year, and it was absolutely exceptional. You know, I, I I'm just trying to figure out how we can do it better. But next year is going to be some developments. Like I told you guys, next year we will be offering classes. And, you know, as Raina and uh, Jen said, <laughs> we need to have some classes on white supremacy, yes, classes, you know, talking about social justice, issues, intersectionality, uh, white privilege, white supremacy, you know, and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, we're getting all of that planned out, but we just wanted to let you guys know that we are thinking of you, and most of these classes will be, you know, virtually next to free, you know. Um, but, you know, we'll be doing recommended book lists. As a matter of fact, we have an Amazon affiliate store. We're still building that out. You know, we'll be putting that out really soon. But, um, guys, you know, I'm just telling you, you know, big changes, big things are happening. 2015, yes. So I'm excited. If you can't tell, you know, everybody that's part of the, you know, PPOC team, we're all excited. We're making strides, but we're doing this for you. Because, again, you know, even with this last conference, you know, we were inviting people to come out, registration, we had, you know, it was only forty dollars, twenty five for students. I gave you a fifty percent discount. And then we also told people if you didn't have any money at all, just show up. We just wanted you there. At the end of the day, we just wanted you there. So, you know, again, you know, get start putting your coins away. Get there. Do not miss this. I'm telling you guys, you missed out on some gems, but that's okay. The D V D is coming. And so you will be able to be enlightened at that time. You know, it was like seven hours of panels and discussions. But, you know, we have to condense that. You know, we're not Steven Spielberg. We can't get away with making a three-hour DVD or movie. But you never know. It may turn into something else. Ah, the talk's in the background. So, hey, keep an eye out. So, you know, I'm going to switch over to our topic today. The call-in number is 310-982-4273. Again, that's 310-982-4273. And if you want to speak with me, press 1. I see a few calls in the queue. A couple of the numbers look familiar, but I'm not going to pick up until you press 1. So today we're talking about black pastors and pulpit politicking or pulpit politics. And 
I'm here in Chicago. I live in Chicago. I anticipate on relocating to Los Angeles. Um, you know, it was supposed to be this year. It's going to be pushed off, but that's okay. But, you know, some interesting things happened in Chicago. But I'll go through the list of questions that I put on the show, um, Marquee. And basically it says, did your pastor openly endorse a candidate? Should pastors be involved in politics? Did your pastor switch political parties? Are you tired of being taken for granted? Do you believe you're being taken for granted? Do you have questions that your pastor refuses to answer? Um, Should their 501c3s be revoked? Are you ready to leave your church because your pastor stepped over the line? Did he go against the wishes of the congregants, and not only the congregants, but the community in which that church is planted? You know, and we need to start demanding answers, you know. And, you know, we made a statement, Black Skeptic Chicago, we released a press statement, and we said, you know, on Chicago, November 5th, 2014, in light of Governor-elect Bruce Rowney's victory in Illinois, gubernatorial race, excuse me, Black Skeptics of Chicago stands in solidarity with the Chicago African-American community and its demand that Bishop Larry Trotter, Pastor Corey Brooks, and Reverend James Meeks account for their backing of Rowner, congregants who support, volunteer, and tithe to these pastors' churches find their support of Rowner objectionable because he is vehemently against the Affordable Care Act, unions, expanding pensions, and a minimum wage increase. These are programs and policies that assist African Americans of all class backgrounds. Black Skeptics of Chicago supports the African American community's call for accountability and transparency from Trotter, Brooks, and Meeks about their vision of leadership in their respective community. Black Skeptics of Chicago joins concerned citizens of the community in calling for an open forum and timely debate on these critical issues. So that is the press release that we put out there. If anybody has any questions, they can email us at blackskepticschicago at gmail.com. Again, that's blackskepticschicago at gmail.com. If you want to speak to us, you can give us a call at 312 725-8339. Again, that's 312-725-8339. So we're looking forward to hearing from you guys, but I didn't want everybody to miss out on the fun. It wasn't just those three pastors in particular. What they have here in Chicago is this economic empowerment forum that has members, and here is a partial list of the other people. I'm just going to list them all, well, the partial list that I found available. But, again, it's the Economic Empowerment Forum. Let's see here. You have Pastor Corey Brooks, founder of New Beginnings Church of Chicago, which is right there on, uh, it's right there off of 63rd Street. And I forget the name. Is that King Drive? I think it's King Drive, but it's right there off of 63rd Street. You have Reverend Marshall Hatch, Sr. of New Mount Pilgrim Missionary Baptist Church. 
You have Pastor Stephen Thurston of New Covenant Baptist Church, and he is the former president of the National Baptist Convention of America. You have Pastor Dr. Robert Patterson of of Spirit of Truth Baptist Church, and he is the president of the Baptist Pastors Conference, Chicago and vicinity. You have Pastor Dr. Willie Cotton, president of the Baptist Ministers Union, Chicago and vicinity. You have Pastor John Gray, pastor of Holy Zion Baptist Church. You have Pastor Michael A. Harrington. You have Andre Flair, president of Omar Medical Supplies. You have Percy Coleman, deputy chairman, Chicago GOP. Okay, so those are a few more people that, you know, jumped on this particular bandwagon. And so, again, you know, you know, James Meeks was a part of this as well as um, Bishop Larry Trotter. So, again, we don't want to miss out on anybody. You know, that's all that I've received on economic. But I'll look some more up, do some more research on it, and put it out there so that you guys can kind of see what's happening and what is going on. So let me see here. If you all want to speak, I'm so serious, you have to press 1 because I, I don't want to pick up on you guys and not really be sure if you're ready to speak. But um, basically, you know, one of the questions that I have there is basically, do you feel that the Democratic Party is taking black, you know, voters for granted? Do you feel like you're being taken for granted? You know, in addition to that, do you feel like these black casters are taking you for granted? I mean, we can look at that, you know, from a number of different positions. And, again, you know, I I didn't really care for the speech that Barack Obama gave when he was talking about the blacks and the Latinos let the Democrats down because they're not really excited about midterm elections, that the majority of these people only turn out for, you know, the presidential elections. And personally, I am getting really sick and tired of the way that he talks down to black people. Um, that's how I see it. I feel that he's talking down to us. You know, what is that with this pookie thing? Yeah, I know we make pookie and Ray Ray jokes, but, um, again, you are in the highest office in the land, and you consistently chastise people of color, particularly black people. Uh, you know, a lot of Latinos, um, especially mestizos, are still waiting for the Obama administration to make some real decisions on immigration and immigration laws. But anyway, do you feel like you're being taken for granted? Because people of color, namely black people, have been voting for the Democrats for so long. And you hear some of this out here when you talk to some black Republicans, and, you know, I've always been transparent on this show I used to be a black Republican. I'm an independent now. You know, I don't, you know, vouch for either political party. I just sit back and I look at the the situation. And one of the issues that I see in our community is too many of us, uh, you know, we vote, <laughs> you know, we think that the presidential election and the mayoral, you know, um, you know, um, election and all of these different offices, sometimes we tend to look at it as a popularity contest. 
And that's not, you know, what it is. And sometimes I just sit back and I listen, and I get really frustrated with some of the ignorance and the admiration of symbolism instead of substance within the community. And there's so much that I can say with that, so many different ways um, that I can go with this particular situation um, in this particular topic, but... Again, um, you know, we're talking about what's happening across the country, not necessarily just in Chicago. You know, I want you all to keep an eye out on Ferguson because apparently the governor of Missouri had a chat with President Obama um, about the grand jury. And so, you know, from what we've been able to assess, um, National Guard helicopters have been dispatched. Ferguson. It's about four helicopters that they sit that way. I am anticipating, you know, some type of announcement either today or tomorrow about, you know, the grand jury and whether they're going to indict the white officer that killed that young man. I think Raina's here. Is that you, Raina? Hey. Hey. Welcome. (laughs) <laughs> Welcome So yeah, Rain of Press Luan, So I picked up um, But yeah, you know, just so much going on But I wanted everybody to know I want you to pay attention to what's happening in Ferguson And, you know, I want you to listen to the rhetoric That is out there um, Because we always wonder We talk about why sometimes poor whites vote against their best interests, and in some cases, you know, blacks vote against their best interests, which is why I brought up that we have to stop looking for symbolism in in what in, in these elections and stop using it as a popularity contest or voting for, you know, who you think is the most popular. We have to start looking at a lot of this in terms of, you know, economics, and, you know, political power, and we need to have an agenda, and we need to set that forward. Um, That's what a lot of people don't understand, but, again, a lot of these red states, you have quite a bit of, you know, poor whites, and they're, you know, pro-Republican, and you all have seen some of the ads that are very anti-black that's out there, and I did a show uh, specifically on affirmative action. But I talked about how affirmative action was created for white people, and it's mainly, you know, being utilized by white people. However, the stereotype is is black people on welfare using up all the resources, and basically white people make up 40%, 42% of the poor, and they get 70% of government assistance. And black people comprise 22% of the poor, and we only take in 14% of the government benefits. So it's important that you all have these statistics and that you understand how this works. Um, I looked at elections all over the country, and basically uh, I'm just sitting here and I'm reading because you all, you really need to go out here. There, in quite a few states, you had uh, a few black pastors um, convince 
some of their members to vote for the Republican Party. And that's fine. It's your vote. You vote for whoever you want to vote for. But some of the issues that they had on deck, you know, the information has been skewed. Um, I'll give you one issue that's, you know, a hot topic right now, charter schools. So it has been proven that charter schools, you know, they pretty much flop. They do not outperform public schools. Mm-hmm. They do not outperform public schools. You know, there have been, you know, reports and research, and we're just telling you what we know to be true. And I've spoken about this before, about how um, there was a time when, and this is like right around World War II. I don't have the information in front of me, and I apologize for that. But basically, when the Republicans got angry with the Democrats and what was happening, what they did is they shut down all funding to public schools, and they shifted that funding to private schools. And so, you know, the white children were able to continue with their education, and the black children were shut out. Now, with this charter school experiment, you know, that's happening across the country, but in particular what's happening here in Chicago, you know, you have people saying that the education gives a better, you know, um, you know, conventional education than the public schools, and that is not true. I need for you all to look up these charter schools and what's happening because this is for profit. This is for profit. This is how private schools or privately owned institutions can get the money from the vouchers, get the federal subsidies, so on and so forth. And, you know, a lot of investment firms, you know, you have a lot of people investing in these charter schools and they're reselling, you know, these schools. And I've given, you know, information and I've posted articles about, in some cases, how you have, you know, immigrants from other countries coming to America, purchasing these charter schools. All they have to do is employ 10 Americans, and then they end up in the front of the INS line, and they're able to bring their family, you know, into the country relatively quickly. So, again, you need to know the ins and outs of what's happening with this. Again, this is about capitalism, and again, it's some racism based on this, and we just want you guys to go out and do some research. You know, we're just hoping and trying to pique your interest. But, yeah, what's happening here in Chicago is, you know, you you have people that are actually accusing um, Governor-elect Rauner of offering these pastors some type of incentive you know, to vote for him. And, of course, these pastors are saying that um, that is not true. And for those that are familiar with state and city grants, these churches have access. They can apply for specific grants, and that money is allocated to them. But for those that are familiar with 501c3s, religious organizations, are not audited. They do not have to give a line-by-line itemization of where they spent that money and how they spent that money. They have really, they do not have to give account for the monies that have been given to them. And this is across the country. I remember when um, President Obama was running for office in 2008, 
and he was saying that he was going to abolish the faith-based initiatives. The black pastors had a little chat with him, and all of that mysteriously went away. He didn't want to, <laughs> um, you know, abolish it anymore. As a matter of fact, he named the faith-based initiative czar. So it's just really interesting because people of color, particularly here in Chicago, because I live here and I see this and I talk to different people, they are very upset with these pastors um, basically shifting and encouraging people to vote for, you know, a governor who's against, again, you know, expanding pensions, who's against increasing the minimum wage. What's interesting is overwhelmingly the people in Illinois voted to increase the minimum wage. But then you vote in a Republican who's against it. Sounds like cognitive dissonance to me, or is it dysfunction, Raina? Or is it a combination of both? Um, I don't know. I can't really speak for them. I mean, there's, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of states that voted in Republican governors that voted for progressive referendums. So, right, it's it's hard. I think I think there are some people. I think there are some people who are coming around to some of these progressive issues that people have been promoting. You know what I mean? And probably right. for some of them, they're coming around because they fall on the other side now. You know, they may have lost, you know, you know, well-paying jobs and, you know, in their, mm-hmm. you know, in their, you know, due to the recession and, you know, just the sort of economic shifts that we've seen. And, or maybe they have right. a child that's home from college and they can't, find suitable employment. So right. I think a lot of people are coming around to, you know, some of these issues and some people have, you know, gay and lesbian kids, you know what I mean? Or, you know, relatives or friends. You know what I mean? So there's there's there I mean, you know, our our neighbors to the north in Canada have shown us that, you know, being conservative <laughs> doesn't necessarily mean being anti, you know, all things which we would consider progressive, right. you know? Exactly. So, I mean, they have universal health. They, they voted for universal health care in Atlanta, in um in Canada, at a time where, you know, conservatism was, like, you know, at an all-time high, you know? Right. And, exactly. you know, there were, there, were finan- there were economic and social reasons for that, you know? So, right. Exactly. And exactly. I think, I think and, I was going to say, in some ways, I think we're seeing a similar thing here. That's all. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's definitely a shift that's happening, not only here, you know, in the United States, but all across the world. If you go and you start looking at some of these other countries that are out here protesting, you see that they are protesting against austerity. So we want you to go and look that up, but in regards to you know, what's happening, you know, with these elections, they spent $4 billion to get elected. $4 billion. (laughs) And for years they've been talking about, you know, election reform. Huh? I was going to say, and most of that was um, in dark, in in what is called dark money. You know, um, there are no funds that are not disclosed. Um, And, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of this... uh, 
that a lot of these changes have come about because of people like Mitch McConnell who are basically trying to undermine McCain-Feingold, you know, which is the exactly. um, the the place in that, you know, regulate or, or at least up until now sort of regulated um, by, you know, campaign finance contributions. Right. Exactly, which is why, you know, Citizens United is and was dangerous. And and this is why we're telling you to go out and educate yourselves on politics and how all of this works, you know. But again, uh, huh, you know, it was about two dozen ministers, black ministers here in Chicago who were, you know, behind Bruce Rauner and, you know, one of the pastors um, Reverend Marshall Hatch says that, you know, this endorsement is about sending a message to Democrats that the African-American vote can't be taken for granted. Pat Quinn had every opportunity to stave off some of this, Hatch said. All he had to do was appoint an African-American as his running mate, which he had two opportunities to do and for some reason didn't do it. And, you know, these pastors say that they recognize that backing a Republican with mostly Democratic congregations is not a popular move, but they say it's a strategic move. And so my question is, if this is a strategic move and the members start strategically putting their money somewhere else, what are you going to say then? Because personally... I think that, you know, again, they need to open this up to, you know, public forums. They need to account for their decision in switching parties and basically going against the wishes of their congregants as well as, you know, the people in the community. Because, again, these churches are in economically and educationally disadvantaged neighborhoods. If you go to any city in America and you go to some of the poorest neighborhoods, you'll see churches all over the place, you know, I guess Jesus will fix it. And so, you know, but they're there. Uh But what people don't understand, and this is what I want people to take into consideration, these churches are not paying taxes. They should be taxed at least at the commercial rate. That is what I'm saying. Uh But not only are, you know, the churches not taxed, you know, the edifice itself, many of these churches have portfolios massive portfolios of real estate. They don't pay any taxes on that either. Their homes, no taxes on that either. And trust me, they don't live down the street from Pookie and Ray Ray. You know, many of them don't. But, again, you know, that money is being sucked out of the community because a lot of the real estate that they own is in the surrounding area and other places throughout the city, and they pay no taxes on that. And basically, it's their congregations or congregants that live in these areas as well as the communities that they sit in, and the schools are dilapidated. Um, the, the teachers, you know, many of these schools do not get top-tier teachers. You know, some do, but not very many of them. Uh, you know, food deserts and a number of other atrocities and you know some of what I have to ask is why do you all continue to support these churches that basically stealing money from the community and not necessarily giving back now again let me put this in perspective put it in context here so that I won't start getting these angry emails oh he does a lot for the community all right so the food pantry 
many of these churches here in Chicago and many places across the country, they get the food from the food depositories, or they'll have members, you know, donate some food, and they give that out to the people, which is wonderful. I have nothing against that. That is admirable. I've done volunteer work doing this, so that's a great thing. The light and heat, you know, uh, assistance programs. Again, people go to the church because the church is like the focal point. What happens is the church dedicates, you know, a computer or an office for intake for LIHEAP, you know, applicants. And basically for every applicant that's approved, they get a percentage of that. And then in addition to that, the the, the um, federal program pays the church for usage of that space, and it allows a couple of people, a few people, to have part-time jobs. And for the most part, those people are members of the church who usually don't live in the immediate neighborhood. But saying all of that to say this, you know, a lot of these churches are not necessarily taking money out of their own pockets and reinvesting in the community. Here in Chicago, I know the churches here do not pay water bills. And there was a fight a few years ago because they wanted to start insisting that these churches pay their own water bills. Um, you know, they get discounts on gas and light, and all, all of this is taking away from the people in the community. Now, what are they doing with the money that they're not paying in taxes and that they're not, you know, reinvesting in the community? What's happening to that money? As you see the pastor pass by in his chauffeur-driven Maybach while you're standing at the bus stop, What's happening to the money as he drives to his $1 million-plus gated community home as you go back to your, you know, your one-bedroom apartment that you can barely keep up payments on every month? What's happening here? Why aren't we holding these pastors and these, you know, ministers more accountable? What I would like to see happen, and if they do open it up to, you know, um, have an open forum, what I plan on doing is basically pulling the information for many of these churches and questioning them and telling them how much money and taxes that they're not paying for their churches and their real estate and how they're basically robbing the people of God. You know, they always tell people Malachi 3 and 8, will a man rob God? Well, you're robbing the community. You're robbing these children out of their education. You're robbing the people, you know, in the community from being able to, you know, utilize that tax money in ways that, you know, could help them, whether it's through education or, you know, creating opportunities for economic empowerment. And, you know, what's interesting is I remember growing up, and I remember, you know, people saying that the church, particularly pastors, should not be involved in politics. But you're seeing more and more of that. And, you know, they have, you know, a Sunday every year in which they they speak against the government and they politicize, you know, that particular day, yet the IRS says and does nothing. So my question is, should their 501c3s be revoked? And because they're not supposed to endorse Candidates. And what's interesting with these ministers, these pastors here in Chicago, many of them said that they would encourage their congregants to support 
rather, while a few of the smart ones said that, you know, that basically it was a personal choice. It was their, you know, personal choice to um, support him. But, you know, for those of you that want to make inquiries to the IRS regarding the status of the 501c3s of these pastors, I have an email address for you. You can email them at eoclass at irs.gov. Again, that email address is eoclass at irs.gov. E is an Echo, O is an Oscar, C is in Charlie, L is in Larry, A is an Alpha, S is in Sam, S is in Sam at irs.gov. If you want to look it up online, you need to look up the 13909 form. Again, 13909 form. You can print that form out, fill it out online, and send it in. But if you want to send an email in just inquiring about the 501c3 status of your particular church and pastor, because for many of these people, it's about their private interests and not the public interests. And with that there, they are violating their agreement with the IRS. So, again, that email address is eoclass at irs.gov, and you can fill out form 13909. So I feel as though I've done my civic duty for the day. And so, you know, but, again, you know, I'm believing that, you know, this strategy is going to backfire for some of these ministers. Um for those that feel that they're above reproach and that their members will stay regardless. This kind of give you a heads up. I'm pretty sure many of them know this, but Eddie Long had to shut down. Basically, they foreclosed on the North Carolina church that he had. The services at, you know, New Birth in Atlanta, you know, was in Lithonia, but services have decreased. The money has been drying up. And But that's not only with, you know, Eddie Long, but all these churches across the country. That is why you saw so many of these edifices, church buildings, being foreclosed on. You had some churches whose who basically their, their edifice, their building had been paid off 20, 30 years. And then they decided that the Lord had told them that they needed a bigger building and a new building. So they started construction on new buildings and we had the mortgage bust, so that fell through, and then they ended up losing the building that they had been residing in, mortgage-free, for 20, 30 years. And, again, you know, this is not to basically attack Barack Obama, but I want you guys to sit back, and I want you to go, and I want you to read and find out what has been happening, because black wealth with this, last economic bust with the mortgage bust, 30 years, 30 years of increase, 30 years of wealth building was lost, lost. And nobody is talking about that. You know, 30 years of black middle income economic growth was lost. And, And nobody's talking about it. I don't hear anyone talking about it. But I hear them attacking Ray Ray and Pookie. Leave Ray Ray and Pookie alone. Leave them alone. Go about your business. You don't even know their last name, Kim. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably Washington Jones or Thomas. <laughs> but, 
you know, again, you know, we're not advocating that anyone, you know, um, bring harm to any of these people, not at all, because unfortunately, you know, um, Pastor Corey Brooks received death threats. Someone broke into his church. They stole about $80,000 from this acrylic box that he had filled with cash. Now, personally, if you have a see-through acrylic box of $8,000 in cash and you live in a cash-strapped society and then you become what they deem as an Uncle Tom, what makes you think that they're not going to come after you? And that's what they did. And that is exactly what happened. He had to move his family. And, you know, that's unfortunate. And I'm definitely wishing him and his family the absolute best. They have the right to live without fear. They have a right to walk down the street. They have a right to endorse and vote for whoever they choose. However, maybe he should have kept that as a private decision. Maybe he himself, you know, vote for Ronner, but when he started encouraging the congregation and doing these press conferences and, you know, making these ads, it took a wild turn. And so when he was being interviewed by WGN News, this is Pastor Corey Brooks, he said, it's unfair that a person does not have a right to voice their opinion and speak about who they want to support, and that some people still feel you have got to stay on this democratic plantation. If you choose to leave it or go off of it, we will attack you. And apparently he got a voicemail that said, watch your back, fat, blank. We own you, black, we own you. They can't protect you. You sell out. You Uncle Tom bleak. Token, you're a puppet for Bruce Rauner. And Pastor Corey Brooks also endorsed Jim Oberwise over Senator Dick Durbin. Dick Durbin won. You know, fortunately, Dick Durbin won because it's just it's really interesting um, what's happening. But, wow. You know, um, there's a Latino activist here in Chicago his name is Teal Hardiman, and he says that he believes that the messages and the break-in are merely publicity stunts. So it's just interesting, and Hardiman says that Brooks and the other black clergy basically threw their support behind Republican Rauner and called them the sellout pastors of Chicago. And so it's just it's been interesting watching this, you know, back and forth, but again, you know, we stand with the black community, and we understand the political uh, fallout of what happens when you have people in office who are against, you know, not only minimum wage increases, they're against the minimum wage period. So, you know, are Meeks and Brooks and Trotter and the rest of them going to, you know, help out their congregants? When when these people start making one and two dollars an hour, are they going to provide jobs that that help them to provide for their families? Are they going to do that? As a matter of fact, in that list of pastors, one of the pastors I and this I know for a fact he's broke. He has no money, none. And for quite a few of them, it is about smoking mirrors. It's not always what you see or what you think. 
And so um, it's just really interesting, and this is why, you know, I tell people that you need to really start paying attention to what's happening, and it's just it's, it's interesting. Um, there was an exit poll in South Carolina, and this exit poll basically was asking voters as they left the polls, um, basically, are blacks getting too uppity in wanting equality and all of this equality talk? And he's going to release the poll results in January. And and what I don't understand is, so because we want justice, we want a level playing field, that means that we're uppity. So if that's what that means, then, yeah, there are a bunch of uppity, you know, black folks in this country because we do want justice. But, you know, what what, what upsets me is some of the answers that people were giving. They were saying that black people should work harder. They should try harder. And if they tried harder, they will have, you know, the same that whites have. And, you know, what's interesting is, and we've done shows on this. I talked about domestic terrorism and, and you know, uh, lynch mobs and all of that. There have been many occasions in many different instances in which we had, you know, thriving, prosperous black towns and cities. And poor whites were upset and got jealous and went and burned the towns down. Lynched people, killed them, chased them out, went, took the property, claimed it as their own, and started, um, uh, basically, they burned and they were hiding different deeds that showed that these properties were owned by black people. I mean, we've given you different um, uh, scenarios and different, you know, um, cities this has happened to. You have Tulsa, Oklahoma, Rosewood, Florida, Wilmington, North Carolina. I mean, it goes on and on. And there are many, many, I mean, in Central Park, New York, that is built upon what was once a very prosperous black community. It was one of the first black communities established after, you know, uh, slavery. But people don't know about this history. And that's one of the reasons why we do this show, so that we can tell you about these things and at least give you enough information that you would want to go out there and, and you know, do some research on your own. We definitely, you know, encourage that. But, you know, I just think it's foul when you have people accusing black people of not trying hard enough or failing to improve themselves. That's just a slap in the face. But you don't just hear white people saying that. You hear a lot of black people saying that as well. You have quite a few people of color that says they'll tell you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And we hear this all the time. And unfortunately, we've started hearing some of that in the secular community, claiming that blacks need to bootstrap and pull themselves up by their pull themselves up by their bootstraps. It's just, it's dehumanizing, it's demoralizing. And when you constantly hear these things, this is why you have some people that have, you know, given up. Um, You know, with Raina talking earlier, when she brought about, when she was talking about some of the young white children or young white people who are graduating from college and not being able to find jobs, 
what's interesting is the finger is pointed at the black community and claim that we have, you know, this sense of entitlement, whereas it was always a given, always a known to, to white people that, you know, there would always be jobs for them, that there would always be opportunities for them. And when that didn't happen, they took to the streets and protested. And ironically, many of them got angry with people of color, particularly black people, because we weren't out there with them. And basically our response was, we were telling you about this. We've been telling you about this for many years. But now it's it's starting to affect you and your family when it's been affecting ours for generations. Because, again, if you go back and you look, and you go all the way back to the New Deal. And that is what, you know, what a lot of people miss. This is what they miss. Before the New Deal was implemented, many blacks supported the Republican Party. And the Democrats, who were also known as Dixiecrats, that is where the Klan started. There was a lot of racism. And, you know, in order for the president to have the New Deal pass, FDR, he had to make a deal with the Dixiecrats. He had to make a deal with the Democrats. And if you want to know more about that, go and look up the Southern strategy because that was the only way he was going to get the New Deal passed. And from that very time period till now, the unemployment rate for blacks have been two to one, whereas before the New Deal, it was one to one. So for one unemployed white person, there was one unemployed black person. But now it's two to one, and it has been that way consistently since the New Deal. And if you want to know a little bit more about the New Deal, I did do a show about that. I want you to go to the show that is marked Affirmative Action and listen to that show. And I didn't even get through all of my notes on the show. We may do a part two because there's so much more information to be shared. Um, I would tell you, I would advise you to go and listen to the show that I did with Jeffrey Perry as well. And he brought out a lot of facts also that I believe that will enrich you and educate you as to what's happening. But, again, what's interesting is, like I said, you know, historically, you know, we have refused to accept this inferior status, and we've struggled really hard to overcome. And then to be told that we're not trying hard enough, but no one talks about the campaigns of terror in in, in our neighborhoods. You know how neighborhoods get, you know, set on fire, how they're killing our children in the street. You know, it was lynching then. Now they're being shot. But no one wants to talk about that. And they try to deflect the conversation and turn it into a conversation on so-called black-on-black crime. There is no such thing as black-on-black crime. And if they want to continue to insist that there is a black-on-black crime, then why aren't we addressing white-on-white crime? And why aren't we utilizing the solutions that, that you know, white-on-white crime is, you know, um, utilizing to improve in their communities? Because there is no such thing. And we've talked about proximity hypothesis. So, again, we want you to go out and do some research. And, you know, again, you know, 
you want to be productive. You want to be, you know, you want to contribute to society. You want a better life for yourself and your family. And you're called uppity. And it's it's just, it's, it's really interesting. But, again, you know, no one is talking about these public murder rituals that are happening across the country at the hands of the police and people of color. But, again, you know, it's just interesting because sometimes it makes you wonder why should we even make the effort when, you know, the response to that effort is shooting us or beating us with crowbars or hanging us from trees. But, anyway, I'll move on from that before I start getting agitated for real. But, again, you know, I'm not saying that people of color or black people should vote for the Democrats over the Republicans. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is we need to look at these officials, these, you know, elected people, and start evaluating their records and holding okay, them I'm gonna say Okay, I'm going to say one thing. I'm not going to say that you have to vote for Democrats over Republicans, but I'm going to say don't vote for the fucking Republicans, period. <laughs> like, <laughs> if, if any, like... I mean, there like there's no party that could have the interest could 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 further set back the interests of black and brown people. It, you, there's no other party unless there was a party that was called the Klan Party. Okay, because well, you know, the Republicans the Republicans have nothing have no, have none of our interests at heart. They're not interested in amnesty for immigrants but they're interested in amnesty for corporations. They're interested in right. amnesty for Wall Street. They're not interested in, you know, helping to further economic and educational opportunities for people of color. They're interested, in fact, in um, in eliminating programs and legislation that protect historically black colleges that serve underrepresented communities, including white people who are poor. You know, they're, they're for... Uh, you know, abolishing those sorts of opportunities that have, have, have sort of been offered to HBCUs, HBCUs historically. Um, there's, uh, and then there's just the fact that they're dismantling affirmative action. You right. know, and you know, it's just it's, it's just a whole host of things that you have to consider. And I mean, let's not forget how many people were disenfranchised by these these uh, voter registration you know, laws right. that came out in several mm-hmm. states. So exactly. And I'm going to tell you, don't to... vote Republican if you if you value your future. <laughs> so, so Lorena has spoken. Lorena has spoken. And, don't, again, you know. you want to vote for, but not them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I know somebody and, who voted for Superman, Batman, and Robin. So, there you go. You know. There you go. Next time, vote for your mama. Do the write-in candidate. That's what I do half the time. But it, you know, um, it's just it's interesting. But oh yeah, you know, since so you talked about the Klan, the Klan are looking for you. They're trying to recruit black people into the Klan. There was an article. So you know, Uncle Ruckus. That doesn't surprise me. They recruited black people in the Klan years ago. Oh so. yeah. 
Oh, yeah, but they're doing something new now. Something I just saw the other day, and I was like, wow, new techniques. But, yeah, no, they've been recruiting people for the Klan for a while. You're absolutely correct. And I mean, black just, people it, in the Klan, though. Like, back in the day, yeah. I mean, look at spies in Mississippi. I mean, those were not those were not people necessarily working directly for the Klan, but they might as well have, you know. Right. But, um, you know, it's the same principle. There were black people who didn't believe that civil, the cause of civil rights could succeed. And so they exactly. they decided to uh, get what they thought was, get with who they thought was the winning team, you know, exactly. hoping, hoping that that would get them some measure of power, you know. Exactly. And, and that's what's interesting about, you know, this election in Chicago. And, of course, Reverend Meeks and, and uh, Corey Brooks are on Rauner's transition team. And in case you all weren't aware of that, you know, they've accepted positions on Rauner's transition team into the, you know, governor's spot. But basically it's interesting that, you know, Raina would say that. And earlier she spoke on, you know, voter ID um, laws that were passed across the country the minute the Supreme Court made the decision to strike down Section 5. And, you know, we talked about it, but I want you guys to pay attention. Sometimes when I put stuff on my wall, sometimes I'll say pay attention or this is important or don't sleep on this. But I put a post up a while ago, and I'll find it and post it again. And I'm telling you, they are getting ready to go after Section 2 of the Voters' Rights Act. So you all need to look that up. And understand, and it's not just people of color that are being affected by this, but it's young people, the students that are being affected by this, um, elderly people, older people, because we have to remember some of these people do not have their birth certificates. Some of them were born when they weren't giving birth certificates out. And what's interesting is they will accept. When they were still being born at home instead of hospitals. Exactly, by midwives, you know, doulas and people Mm -hmm. like that. But they will accept your firearm owner's ID. They will accept your damn fishing license, but they will not accept your student ID. How does that work? How does that work? A fishing license? Really? So a lot of students were disenfranchised as well. But, again, we we got to stop playing step it and fetch it for either of these political parties. We need a clear-cut agenda. And we need to start organizing with an agenda, especially because, and, especially because now they're trotting out all these black folks on the Republican side who who don't sound as crazy as Alan Keyes anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so, I felt so bad, so. daughter. But yeah. What do you say? I said I felt so bad for his daughter. Oh, I, I forget Alan what happened with his daughter. Oh, well, when she came out as LGBTQ, he kicked her out the house and stopped paying for her college tuition. And yeah, the LGBTQ community rallied around her and paid for the rest of her education and showed her all the love that she needed. And so um, it was just a whole thing. Yeah, I think so, too. It was absolutely beautiful, absolutely beautiful. But we have to stop playing step it and fetch it for, you know, for these people. And because, you know, many of them are not, I mean, have you paid attention to these politicians? Have you all 
don't listen to the words that come out of their mouths. But then on the flip side, someone can say, well, why aren't, you know, more intelligent people running for office? Why aren't the intellectuals running for office? Good question. Part of the answer is why. Not always is. It's it's funding too, you know. What I mean, it's it's not just enough just to have your name out there, you know what I mean. You're running against people who have millions of dollars in their war chest, you know. Exactly. Why so. I feel that we need reform. I feel that everybody oh, yeah, should get absolutely. the same amount of money. Yeah, everybody should get the same amount of money and take you know the corporatization of elections out of it because they're essentially. Mm-hmm purchasing and buying these elections. Good luck with that. <laughs> I don't think you get it done. Good luck with that. But, you know, it's a, it's, I mean, obviously that's an admirable goal to have, but good luck with that. Right. So, yeah. I mean, you basically, happening. basically in order to get that change, you would need, like, you would need at least 50, uh, 50 Manchurian candidates to take over the Senate. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're talking like, we're talking like, you know, some folks that got up there and they're all corporate, you know, corporate friendly, and then they get up there and they're like, yeah, so about those things, I promise you, that's not going to happen because I'm right. going to help the I'm going to help the little man now, and that would never happen. So it was exactly. great. Oh yeah. No, no, you're right, you know, and I'm just thinking back to the comment that you made a few minutes ago about the civil rights movement where you're talking about the spies of Mississippi. And, again, we've talked about this, and I'm going to reiterate it, that when the civil rights movement started, it started way before the 50s and 60s, but I'm going to specifically talk about the 50s and the 60s and um, going into the 70s. Uh, It was a secular movement. It always has been a secular movement. And with Martin Luther King, a lot of the pastors and churches did not support him. Less than 5%. Five. Less than 5% supported him. And what's interesting is that movement was co-opted by the religious and, you know, with their attempts to say that, you know, uh, Martin Luther King represented, you know, the church and, you know, again, with the symbolism of him being Moses and then the symbolism of Barack Obama being Joshua, it's just, again, that's why I said earlier, you know, the admiration of symbolism is what gets us in trouble as opposed to us, you know, admiring substance in some cases. But, again, um, unfortunately, because of the extreme religiosity in this country, many people of color, namely black people, and I don't know all black people, and I'm not saying all black people, understand that, but they're looking for some messianic figure to show up and to save them. And that's never going to happen. And what's interesting is you have some black clergy out here who are finally starting to convey that message, that that messianic, that black messianic figure that the black community is looking for does not exist, and that this new phase of the civil rights movement will not be led 
by the religious. It won't be, and it's not going to be. They can't. And that's why, you know, I am telling people to keep an eye on Ferguson because, again, you know, I get chills thinking about that. These kids stepped up to the plate, and I... I admire what they did. They they read, my God, they you know they refused and they rejected the religious platitudes. They told Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton to go home with their begging asses. They could have tweeted that they were praying for them. Why you had to go down to Ferguson to tell them? I'm still confused about that. But when they started begging for donations, the people of Ferguson booed them off the stage. And mm-hmm. you know the whole thing, you know, and you know, and I feel for you know President Obama because you know he is getting disrespected left and right. Someone you know called CNN the other day and said that the Republicans hate that black N word in the White House, and you we it's always been about race with him in this mm-hmm. White House, and that is yeah, one I mean, of the reasons why it's like they say. Right, they say let's go left. He'll be like, okay, let's go left. They'll be like, no, we're going right. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know, just because they don't, they're just oppositional to everything. It's like, you know, he'll be like, okay, let's try to let's try to hash this out. They'll be like, no. He'll be like, okay, fine, I cave. They'll be like, no. <laughs> you know, right. it's like so. Even when he gives them exactly what they want, they don't want to. They don't want to play. They don't play with him. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, what's interesting is is that there are many people in the black community that are very upset with President Obama because he backed a lot of other communities and, and, and basically had to be cajoled into making statements about you know, the Trayvon Martin case and even about Ferguson. And his responses were so watered down. And even when he tried Mm -hmm. to, you know, say that Trayvon Martin could have been his son, then, you know, that just started another, you know, firestorm there. And I'm just sitting back and I'm looking at, you know, Ben Stein made a statement the other day saying that, you know, President Obama was the most racist president this country has ever had. And I guess that's discounting the ones that own slaves, but that's what the, I don't understand. Yeah, I don't who understand. cares what Ben Stein says anyway? No one's cared what Ben Stein has, said, has, has had to say since he, he said Bueller, okay? Since he said Bueller and Ferris Bueller's day off, no one has cared what Ben Stein has had to say, ever. I'm sorry. Not even when he had that show, Ben Stein's Money or whatever. You know what I mean? Right. No. No one cares. Exactly. Oh, yeah, but I mean, what I'm saying is that, you know, the message that he's conveying, know. you know, it's, it's been, you know, repeated over and over by a number of people. And unfortunately, you know, there are many people out here who feel that the Clinton administration um, did more for the black community than Barack Obama. There are some people out there that believe that when that's not actually true. Um, the Clinton administration may have recognized 
the black community more than Barack Obama, but they have not done more for the black community, you know, the welfare reform, you know, NAFTA, and a number, you know, the deregulations. And what we've experienced with economic bust and, you know, the mortgage bust, that was the Clinton's fault. Mm-hmm. Let's just take it back and put the blame where it belongs. That was mm-hmm. President Clinton. And unfortunately, many of these same black pastors, the ones that are flip-flopping as to what party they really want to belong to and whether they want to, you know, um, um, convey the wishes of their congregates and communities, many of the pastors, let's take it back. I want you guys to remember, you know, I'm going to be like Sophia from the Golden Girls, you know, back in 19, let me see here. 1996 and 98. I want you all to go back in a travel machine with me here. Remember when all of these pastors were in the pulpit saying, God wants you to have a house? It mm-hmm. don't matter if you're making $6 an hour, God's going to put you in that $300,000 house that people that made six figures could before, but you got unmerited favor. Okay? Mm-hmm. And they were encouraging their congregations to go out and buy these homes. But of course, they were, you know, encouraging the congregation to go through their spouses or their cronies' mortgage company or go through their realtor, you know, company through somebody connected at the church. Mm-hmm. And they made money off of it while they were telling you these things. But Again, you know, they read the newspapers just like, you know, many of us do. They saw that, you know, um, the the deregulation and the mortgage. And, again, some of that needed to be done because we did have a problem with redlining and, and, you know, uh, poor people and namely black people being corralled into certain areas, just like, you know, here in Chicago, the south and west side. There are areas that are, you know, highly concentrated by blacks. You know, blacks pretty much are encouraged to live in those areas. But, again, most of the homeowners, most of the people that own the property in these areas are rich white men, and this is to keep them empowered. This is to keep them you know, you know, viable, economically viable. So, again, this is being done on purpose. I mean, we want you to do the research. I did a show talking about public policy, about the highway programs and how they're implemented, you know, when, when and I'll give you some more information on that. Basically, in a nutshell, when a certain area of town becomes a blight, a visual blight or an economic blight, what they do is they'll either build, expand the highway into that neighborhood or they'll push everybody out by gentrifying it. And this has been happening over and over and over. And they push a lot of these people out into the suburbs, and then they cut the bus service, you know, or right. they just totally stop the bus service. And with a lot of the manufacturing jobs that we lost due to NAFTA, which was signed by Bill Clinton, a lot of the blue-collar jobs that, you know, were available to people of color as well as white people, um, you know, they they went away. 
And so these mm-hmm. manufacturers, I mean, when U.S. still went under, I was blown away. Honestly, I never thought I'd see the day. I think that came as a surprise for many of us. But, again. And and a lot of communities and, and cities are still trying to recover. I mean, you know, when Bethlehem Steel closed in Baltimore, you know, that yeah. led to a lot of uh, poverty. I mean, people who were formerly, you know, formerly considered themselves, you know, you know, middle class or at least, you know, lower middle class. You know, they right. were thrown into poverty, and the city is exactly. still recovering. I mean, there's really there's really only two types of jobs in Baltimore City. I mean, you're either involved in, in sort of the academic, you know, universities that are around, you're in the biotech sphere, or you're in the service industry. Exactly. You're in the service exactly. industry. And, then, and, now with, and now with the casinos and everything else, it's getting worse. Oh, you know? yes. Oh, definitely. You know, this is a good time to own a pawn shop. Um, mm-hmm. um, and I'm just not understanding what's happening with President Obama. He worked over here in the, on the south side of Chicago. Mm-hmm. He was a community activist on the south mm-hmm. side of Chicago. He's seen some of the most poverty-stricken areas and neighborhoods. I would think that he would know better. He's but seen it. The others, there, yeah, but that doesn't necessarily. But seeing is not necessarily living it. And you know, sometimes oh, yes. the best the best advocates that are out here are the advocates that actually live these circumstances themselves. You know what I mean? We kind of already have an idea of what President Obama, you know, thinks about people who come from these neighborhoods. You know, part of it is thinking that if they pull up. Their their pants, <laughs> you know what I mean. Right. That they'll be okay. Right. You know, I'm not. I don't want to put. I, I almost. Uh, I almost quoted Don Lemon, but I don't want to put Don Lemon's words in Obama's mouth. You know what I mean. <laughs> but you know, I mean, in some in some sense, he he does uh, share some of Don Lemon's you know ignorant beliefs. You know that somehow. Um, the problems that we face in the black community is somehow related to our ability to to wear a belt properly. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's just not right. true. You know, right. and I mean, yeah. and some of that, and some of that, is, and some of that is, you know, and and a lot of black people like he's Obama is not he's not an anomaly. Like he's not he's not you know so far out there. A lot of black people believe this themselves. And a lot of poor black people believe this themselves, too. So it's not just middle class, you know, black people looking down on lower class black people thinking, oh, well, if you just, you know, if you just pulled yourself together and pulled yourself up by your boots. A lot of poor people believe this. You know what I mean? Exactly. Exactly. And, again, the number is 310-982-4273. Again, that's 310-982-4273, press 1, if you would like to speak with us. But, you know, I was going to say, that's part of the myth that we're told, told, though, from the time that we're young. You know what I mean? That if you just work hard, you know, that you can can basically be be rich and, you know, be uh, part of, you know, the powerful and, you know, have this American dream with the white ticket fence and the, you know, the big house, point five kids, you know what I mean? And that's just, it's just not true. 
that dream. Exactly. Even it's even the thought. people who do attain that dream, they're attaining that dream on the backs of somebody else. On the backs exactly. of people who don't make who who barely make, you know, seven fifty an hour. You know what I mean? Or right. people who can barely who can barely keep their lights on, who you know, the same people who, you know, clean their toilets and take out their trash and you know what I mean? Right. So Exactly, exactly. And then anyway, but yeah. And then want to turn around and say, you know, that these people don't deserve, you know, a minimum wage or don't deserve a raise right. in a minimum wage. Yes, they do. Mm-hmm. They have families. Mm-hmm. They have to as well. But, you know, right. again, I'm just looking at all of this. And, again, President Obama has been the best economic president there has ever been, period. And when I say that, what I'm talking about is Wall Street and the recovery on Wall Street. And what I find ironic is the people on Wall Street are the ones wishing for his death and calling him the N-word. And the people that are being hurt the most, the poor, many of them are praising him and praising his work just because they see a person of color in the highest office in the U.S. And I, I, I just don't know what to say anymore. You know, I'm just flabbergasted. I mean, you know, just looking at all of this, and um, and you know, he needs to stop referring to black people as pookie. Mm-hmm. He needs to stop that. He really needs mm-hmm. to stop that because it's disrespectful, and it opens the gate and it 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 signals to other people that it's okay to talk down to us, and mm-hmm. it's not okay. You know, is is okay, and nope. so again, you know, it's just so much that we need to talk about. Um, you know, Occupy Wall Street that came about because young whites, you know, graduating from college, there weren't any jobs for them. Um, they didn't see any economic viability in their future. And that was out. And see, what I don't understand about some of these black pastors is they'll get in their pulpits and they'll start talking politics. They'll say, you know, in in a real roundabout way, there are some that are outright, very overt in, in, in who they want you to vote for and what they want you to believe. But, you know, the interesting thing is you have some of these pastors in the pulpit saying that they are against, you know, LGBT, you know, Q, uh, marriage equality. They are against, you know, marriage equality. They're against abortion. They're against all of these things that they have been basically cued by white evangelicals to be against. Because initially they weren't thinking about those particular issues and, and when they get in the pulpit and they start playing politics like that, they are, you know, influencing their congregation. And then they have people, you know, repeating what they're saying. That's why when you talk to some people, religious people, even some non-religious people, you say something and you already know you're going to get a certain response back because we have been trained to do that. We have been trained to think that way. And it's just um 
there are some people out here that are just willfully ignorant and blind. And when I say that, you know, I'm talking about they just don't want to see what is right in front of them. And there are some changes that need to be made. I understand about shaking up the Democratic Party because, you know, they have taken our votes for granted. Um, They have not followed through on promises. And, you know, and, and that's fine. Hold the Democrats and Republicans to account. Hold them responsible. Hold, but you need to hold Barack Obama responsible too. President Obama needs to be held for, you know, held to account for the promises that he made. And people are expecting him to sign that immigration, um, you know, to, to to make some strides towards the immigration issues that we're having in this country and granting amnesty, so on and so forth. So it should be interesting to see how all of that plays out. But, again, it's just a lot of politics that are being played around with in the church, and many of these pastors are looking at their own bottom line. They are going to benefit from this, And I just want you guys to pay attention. Pay attention because um, James Meek, Pastor Meeks, was once a state representative in the state of Illinois. And so he served for a certain amount of time, and then he stopped. But I definitely want you guys to start paying attention to what they're saying. But I also want you to start paying attention to what you're being robbed of. You know, the money that they're taking away from the tax base not only with the church building, but with the other, you know, real estate portfolio that they own. You know, a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, the pastor's home falls under the same 501c3. No taxes are being paid on that. All of the lawn care, the pool boy, all of that, all of that is paid under the 501c3. All the furniture in the house, all of the bills, all of that falls under the 501c3 tax-free. So the question is, how much money is your pastor robbing your community of? You need to go look that up. How much, if they they weren't shielded by that 501c3, how much money would someone else have to pay in taxes on those properties? And ask your pastor if he's willing to take that amount of money that should be going towards taxes for the community, is he willing to take that money and reinvest it in the community in the forms of businesses, in the form of scholarships, you know, opening up recreation educational centers, learning centers, job training? Are your pastors willing to do that? Are they, even at the commercial tax rate, Let's just say we lowered it to the commercial tax rate. Are they willing to go through their books and see how much money they would be paying at the commercial tax rates, take that amount of money, and reinvest it in the people who support them in the communities in which they reside? If they're not willing to do that, personally, I couldn't sit under that ministry because you don't care about the people, because they're spending that money on what 
they want to spend it on. And with a lot of these pastors, it's, you know, it's the black good old boy network. You know, they're competing with each other who has the best car, who has the best house, who has the biggest, baddest church. In addition to that, they've gone beyond that. Who has the best private jet? Who has multiple, you know, church locations? It's gotten to the point, who has the biggest mall? Who owns the, you know, the most affluent credit union and bank? Many of you all don't even realize that some of your pastors, they own credit unions and banks and malls. That's free. You should be asking some questions. You should be asking a lot of questions. And we won't even get into with some of these churches with the money laundering and how all of that takes place. But that's that's another story, and it's not the one for me to tell. But do some research. Do some research. Because there are a lot of bitter pills that we're all being forced to swallow. And we're all being hurt in some way or another. So, again, you know, it's just it's interesting um, how all of this is coming about. You need to start asking questions. You need to start asking the hard questions. Stop softballing these pastors. Because, see, what happens is when they have these forums, and especially if you're a member and they recognize you and you start asking the hard questions, you know, some of them may shun you and ostracize you, shun you right on out of the church and encourage people that you've known, you know, for decades to not have anything to do with you because you dare question a pastor. And and the vision God allegedly gave that pastor or they'll try to stop you with, you know, the scripture, touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm. So I guess asking questions and questioning, you know, uh, you know, their stewardship, if you will, that's, that's hurting the anointed one. But, again, if you go back, and like I said, you have to put the Bible in context. You know, again, I... This is not my ideology, but if you're going to believe it, you need to believe it in context. But with that particular scripture, it's talking about physically touching someone. It's not about telling the truth about someone or holding someone personally responsible and accountable for their decisions. You have a right to ask those questions. Do not allow them to intimidate you or manipulate you into silence. Do not do that. You have a right to ask these questions. You have a right to demand transparency from these pastors. You have to remember, the pastors, in all honesty, if you don't get anything else from this show today, I want you to understand and I want you to get this. The pastors work for you. They work for you. You pay their salary. Now, some of them may say they only get a dollar a year or they don't collect any salary from the church. They have their ministries and their businesses. Where did they get that seed money from? That came from you. And your pastors are able to get away with what they're doing because you allow it. If you put your foot down and demand it better, trust me, they would jump to it. They wouldn't have a choice. 
let the money start drying up. Keep your money. Sit on your hands. Leave that checkbook at home. Leave that, you know, leave that debit card at home. Some of these churches have ATMs, and they have the little swipe things, the PayPal or the use for it, you know, swipes. It's a business. It is a business. So with any other business that you patron, you would demand excellent customer service. What are you getting from that church? Besides an emotional explosion, and you get to hop around and dance, you know, for a little bit. But anyway, we have a caller online. Let's see here. Area code 661. May I ask who's calling? This is Red Ninja. Hey, Red. Hey, how are you? Very good. How are you? Hey, I'm good. I'm good. What you got to say about these pastors and this politics from the pulpit? Well, I don't really honestly have much to say that you haven't already said. I mean, you pretty much put it perfectly. Um, I mean, church is a business. In America, uh, it's, it's interesting, too, like, in America, America is all about big business, and churches have actually taken up a lot of its philosophy. And it's to the point where, you know, when I was actually at my old church, um, before I deconverted, the pastor would always say, you need, if it hurts, that means you need to continue giving because giving should hurt you. It doesn't matter how much you stretch your budget. It doesn't matter how much you are struggling right now. You should give until it hurts because it should hurt you to give. That's how you know you're sharing in Christ. Um, exactly. That's, that's the kind of thing, that's the kind of thing you could only hear from somebody who knows that the power is where the money is. Exactly. Right? You follow the money. You don't do exactly. anything else, but you follow the money. And it, even if you're going to give the money, I, the way I look at it is, okay, so you're a Christian, you go to church, you believe in tithes and offering. Okay, at least demand accountability for where the money is going. That's exactly. half the battle within our black community is at least holding our pastors accountable for where the money is going. Um, exactly. There's so many. There have been so many scandals within the church regarding the misappropriation of church funds, regarding why the building funds are not actually going to where they're supposed to be going why there's so many fundraisers, but so many things are actually not being done within the community to help the greater communities out. Um, and it's just a simple lack of accountability. And exactly. that's why we shouldn't have pastors driving up in $250,000 Hummers mm-hmm. in the midst of a community that has a anywhere from a 60 to 70% homicide rate. Exactly. Like it is where I live, like in Cleveland, um, you know, we like I used to live in like the lower west and the lower east side and you know, the closer you get downtown the poorer it gets and you, you know, these areas within like the lower west and the lower east side of Cleveland, Ohio, um, a lot of the students I mean, there's a thirty to forty percent dropout rate in high school. Um, there's seventy percent of the people live at or below the state poverty line, but in the midst of all that you have a pastor who drives with a $300,000 Hummer and tells them that if you continue to give to Christ, you'll be blessed like I am, but that's not happening. Right. You have people week after week 
telling, mm-hmm. trying to convince themselves that if they just sow enough seed, that they will be blessed, that they will be given riches beyond what their imagination can actually contain. And they go exactly. week after week and they say, I claim it in the name of Jesus. I claim this yeah. and that in the name of Jesus. I claim this. Mm-hmm. And yet they go week after week after week struggling just to find a job, just to make it to work, just to keep food on the table. And exactly. I've even had, I mean, it's just astonishing. Like I've even had like one of my ex-girlfriends actually told me that she believed that one of her friends was suffering and not able to pay the rent because God told her not to get a job and therefore he's punishing her. And I'm just sitting wow. there like, what? How? I I couldn't even. I right. <laughs> I, I just and that's when I was a Christian. I still I sat there and I said, do you really believe that? And what kind of access do you have to God that you can actually say something like that? You have to be God in order to say something like that. And it's ironic right. that now, as a non-believer, we kept being told we want to be like gods and have and rule our own lives and and be told that we want to be, you know, the leaders of our own destinies and things like that, when it's Christians that want to be God and that want to speak for the place of God. Right, 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 because, you know, what's interesting is, you know, is God always dislikes the things that they dislike. And, right. you know, again, going back to what you were saying, about, you know, the pastor saying, look at what I'm driving, look at how I'm dressed, look at how God is um, blessing me. And, again, I've, I've called church, you know, basically it's like the lottery. It's like a Ponzi scheme. It's like a pyramid scheme. So, you know, as far as when they start telling you those things, because he's the pastor and his cronies that are at the top of the pyramid, they're the ones getting paid. And trust me, trickle-down economics does not work in a church either. So it's not just society no, it where it doesn't work. It doesn't work at the church either because these people are not opening businesses in the neighborhoods. And if they do open a business in the neighborhood, all their kids and their kids' friends work there. None of the people in the neighborhood work there. But, again, let's just go back to, you know, what you were saying earlier about, you know, and, you know, what we were talking about with people giving money to the church. And like I said, I want the congregation to understand you hold the power. You hold the yeah. power. You can change that church vision and agenda. You hold the power. And unfortunately, it's also that pulpit is also, you know, a bully pulpit. And I've seen so yeah. many of these pastors emotionally abuse their people, abuse of power, abuse of authority, authority, all of that. But one thing I want these people to do, I want you to ask yourselves this question. When when you're being chastised and, you know, like the young lady that you were talking about that, you know, was in dire straits, if she had gone to the church to see if the church could help her, first thing they're going to do is look on the computer to see if she has been tithing and offering and how long she's been yeah. there. And, right. and if she's only getting $500, but over the years she's given about, you know, 12000 well, they can give her $500 back. But in many cases the answer is still going to be no, and you're going to be told that you are not a good steward of God's money. So this is a logical question that I want people to ask themselves. Again, you're being told that you're not a good steward of God's money. Why is it 
that these churches collect money every week saying that God needs A, B, C, D, and E. If they were good stewards of God's money, they should have taken the money that you all invested in them and in that church and invested it in something else, whereas then that would be an active or a passive income stream for the church to pay the church's bills, and they should be outside on the corner, handing out bags of money to the people in the neighborhood that need help and the members of the congregation that needs help. So while they're pointing the finger at you and telling you that you are a bad steward of money, you need to ask them what are they doing with the money that you all have invested into them. Now that's right. the and real even question. If it, even if it's not money, right, and even if it's not money, food, medicine, exactly. school supplies yes. for the kids, these things are easy to do. Exactly. They are ridiculously easy to do. Exactly. Exactly. It's not and, even and, hard. You, like know, you can dig in, dig in like three, four hundred dollars, and actually get on the quarter and actually go out and serve meals. And don't even like try to go in and say, "Okay, now I would encourage you to come to my." No, don't even do that. Literally, freely right. give out of your own heart. Exactly. With no agenda. That would impress exactly. me. Exactly, exactly. And see, and that's why I'm looking at the secular community. And again, they use these social justice issues, you know, uh, and they use them as gotchas in debates when the secular community is not doing anything in the community. I mean, you know, I'm not going to let a podcast go out without me pointing the finger at the secular community. <laughs> You know, because, you know, we, we, we ain't got our stuff together over here yet. But the thing is, is that you have some people in this community that do not believe in social justice. We have a very strong, um, you know, libertarian and conservative Republican vein in this particular community. And we need to take that into consideration. And also, church folks. You are being fooled by the Republican Party, and you're being set up to fail. And let me tell you why and how. Basically, they want to basically push these so-called entitlement programs off the government role and give them to the churches to handle. These churches are not equipped to deal with the real issues of poverty in this country, and it's going to fail gloriously. You know, and, and, and then they're going to say, well, if the church can't provide, you know, these services for the poor and, and you know, uh, the disadvantaged, then we don't need to have these services at all. They know that the church is not going to be able to handle that burden. They know it's going to be misappropriation of funds. They know it's going to be nepotism and cronyism. And they know that in, in many cases, you know, it's, it's going to be a carrot. In order for you to get you know, the food you need to feed your family through the rest of the month, you must come up here and you must listen to a two-hour boring sermon and you must sit in, you know, uh, what they used to call that, um, the seat of the scornful, and, and yeah. let everybody forget and, and anoint you, and then you got to dance around the church, you know, dance for your dinner. And that's not every church. You know, I'm being kind of facetious there, but in some cases that is the scenario. And again, it's, it's that's the case, why it's we the case, like it's the case with eight out of ten churches, and just on the topic of you know homeless people in particular. Um, you know, I remember when I was a kid, and you know we went to missions. 
because, you know, for a time, me, my brothers, and my mom were actually homeless. And, you know, I was fortunate that some of the homeless missions that were secular in nature, as a matter of fact, um, did not demand that we sit through, like, you know, two-hour service. But you have several churches that will actually bring in, you know, these these homeless individuals, um, individuals that are out on the street that need a meal, and they will force them to sit through sermons and, in certain cases, actually make them convert before they even see a meal. So this whole idea that, you know, the church is doing so much for the community, um, they're doing doing their part for the community, but with caveats. And the caveat is you have to believe – exactly, you have to believe like they do. And guess what? If you're the homeless person and you go out and you say, hey, listen, man, I just need a sandwich, brother. I know you're trying to convert me. I know you're trying to proselytize. You're trying to save my soul because you consider my soul more important somehow than the fact that I'm desperate, I'm hungry, I'm freezing out here and I need to eat. But can I please just have a sandwich? No, you can't do that because you need to do what we say first. And what what else are they going to do? What else are they going to say? No, I can't have that sandwich then. They're going to go back out on the street? Of course not. They're going to sit there, and many of them, and I can't really blame them, will say, you know what, well, if it means i got to eat, I'm going to join the church. Right. Right. And, and see, there's and, always and caveats. Right there. Always. Exactly. Caveats. There's always the price to pay. And, you know, what's interesting is, again, you know, and I kid you not, you know, you have many atheists, agnostics, free thinkers, whatever, that still go to church because church is able to assist them in their needs. And unfortunately, you know, what I'm seeing a lot of in the secular community here is, you know, they'll tell you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And they basically, they'll tell you that, you know, uh, they'll call you a social justice warrior, number one, to try to shut down the conversation. But in addition to that, they basically, they, they tell you that you're on your own and that you have to figure it out for yourself. Because, again, well, you know, some of these libertarians out here, it's about who collect the most toys and who gets to collect everything. They want everything they have, they want everything you have, and they want more. And they don't care if you're starving. They don't care if your lights are going out. They don't care, you know, if your children are being taken away. You know, you should have found a way to get rich. You should have found right. a way to make some money. And that's, you know, for the webcast next Sunday, we're going to be talking about how, you know, the atheist community is being corporatized, just like we saw, you know, the LGBTQ movement being corporatized. The same thing is happening with the atheist secular community. And we want you all to pay attention and to be aware of this because, I mean, even with our ministry, religion, religion is corporatized. And because yeah. Creflo Dollar, he himself, Creflo Dollar, was trying to set world changers up so that he could IPO world changers. I want you all to understand how these people think. This is a business. It's about the money, honey. It's about the money. So you need to understand what's happening. Your money makes things happen. Because what happens is you give your tithes, your offerings to the church. You know, oh, Lord, you know, the pastor's birthday, you got to give the birthday money. You got to come to that boring-ass party with that nasty cake. I mean, you know, you got to give some of the love offerings. 
that, you know, the you know the anniversary of the first lady and the pastor, then the first lady wants to yeah. give a tea, and the first lady wants to do this, that, and, and all of this, this is all the money coming out of your pocket. And then, of course, you know, people, many, many churches is dressed to impress. That's relaxed over the years. But one thing I will say, those Kojic women, they be sharp with those big-ass hats. But, you know, it costs yeah. money for all of that to, you know, wear those St. John shoes. It costs money to, you know, wear the Ferragamo shoes. I mean, that costs money. And so it's it's, right. it's an industry. We want you to understand this is an industry, and it's all banked on your money. You, as you know, in the scriptures it says that, you know, they will make um, what they will make um well, what's, I forgot the scripture, but basically they're t- basically saying that what the people are doing is they're taking your money, they're making you consumers. It's, it's, it's about capitalism. And you'll see right. many of these people, you know, advocating for capitalism, but we want you to look deeper than that. We want you to look beyond that because tethered to capitalism is racism. And you need right. to understand how they work hand in hand because right. they actually and, and, do. And not just racism, but also classism, because in order to sustain a classical right. capitalist system, there has to be a certain amount of people that won't make the capitalist system. And the poor are needed right. by the rich, and the rich are needed by the poor. There can't be a middle ground. There can't be a sustained income across the board because then capitalism collapses in the classical exactly. Exactly, and you're absolutely correct, and that's the reason why I tell people, I hope this is starting to make sense to you, because you have to understand that there has to be a certain percentage of people in this country unemployed and underemployed in order for our economic system to not collapse. This is by design. Yeah, and I get... You know, I get really tired of hearing that, you know, America is the absolute greatest country in the world and that there is nothing that we could have done better. That's bullshit. That's people pulling exactly. wool over your eyes. Stop saying that. Exactly. Because there's a lot of things exactly. that we can work on. I'm grateful to be exactly. here in America, but I'm not about to sit here and praise it like it's a God. Right. Yeah. Oh, have you noticed that patriotism is like the new religion? You know, patriotism and your children or yourself serving in the military. So that goes back to that nationalism, which, you know, again, we would tell people because you need to go back and research this because that's how we got in God we trust on the money. When we had the red scare, the McCarthyism, you know, go back and take a look as to when um, under God was entered into the Pledge of Allegiance and in God we trust was put on the money. But again, you know, again, with the politics and the pulpit, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, Black Wall Street, you know, Tulsa, Rosewood, Wilmington, and a number of other cities that were destroyed by white domestic terrorists through jealousy because of their economic prosperity and viability. Um, what I want you all to understand is even during those times when they would make changes in law, they would write these edicts. And they would basically hang these edicts on the church doors. 
and when we had Christopher Everett on the show, we were talking about, you know, um, the place that religion played in, in what happened, the massacre at Wilmington, and that they had the white pastors standing outside some of their black members' homes saying, I know you're in there, you need to come on out here, and they were lynching people and killing them. But they were putting the new laws up on the doors of the churches, and the pastors were reading it, and the pastors were mm-hmm. telling everybody where the black people live. So, again, you know, it's, it's just interesting because if you go back, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. even said that Sunday is the most segregated, you know, Sunday church hours are the most segregated times of the week, and that is true, and that is true, and that's why we did the show talking about the God concept. And, you know, when you hear white people, it, Christians, you know, it's, it's about fear and oppression with black people. It really is about that hope and change. And, you know, that's yeah. what I found interesting about President Obama's election, you know, and in, in his hope and change. And I don't know how that's working out for you all, but let's just mm-hmm. say I'm not necessarily a happy, happy camper. But, again, um, we just, we want, it's just, it's interesting. Um, when you were talking about, and Raina brought some of this up earlier, and I touched on it too, about this myth of American exceptionalism. There is no such thing. There is no such thing. They tell you, you go out, you get educated, don't have kids that you can't afford, work hard, right. and you have, or, you know, you, the world is your oyster. That's a lie. It's a lie, and it has come down upon the heads of many of us. I used to be one of them that believed this shit. And it was just interesting because I posted an article by Otis Graham. Um, He's the gentleman that wrote that book, Not Our Kind of People. And so he was talking about how he told his children that their elite upbringing would shield them from discrimination. Well, Surprise, surprise, you know, he was wrong because somebody, you know, um, called his son a name, and, you know, I guess it came as a shock to, you know, him and his family. But, you know, like they say, you know, your silence will not protect you. And, you know, um, Zora Neale Hurston says basically, and I'm not quoting it directly because I'm going to get it wrong, but I'm going to give you the concept that if you are silent, they will kill you and then tell everybody that you enjoyed it. You know, right. so what was that, Audre Lorde? I think that was Audre Lorde. But, again, um, I want you guys, you know, you need to speak up. You need to speak out. You need to hold these pastors and these politicians accountable. So, you know, these black pastors that supported Rauner, they're telling you that these politicians have not, you know, held to their promises that they've made the community need to have those black pastors. They haven't either. I want you to sit back and I want you to reevaluate the situation. Just like they're telling you to hold these politicians accountable, you need to hold them accountable as well because, again, um, huh. You know, at the end of the day, we're the ones that get hurt the most. They called it the Great Recession. A Great Recession for them is a Great Depression for us. And, again, 30 years of wealth just totally wiped out, totally wiped out. And the people who were responsible for it pretty much got 
got away with it. And they're still prospering from this. And they're the main ones out here calling President Obama the N-word and hate his guts. They absolutely hate his guts, but they love what he's doing for their bottom line. Because, see, again, you know, you know, like I said, poverty in and of itself is expensive. But racism sells. It's controversy. It sells. And you all need to be paying attention to what's happening here. And, again, it, it's not about symbolism. It's about substance. And, and I think there's something too that I was gonna say. I think there's, um, you know, we should be paying we should be paying attention to what happens when churches do hold their pastors accountable. The difference right. between the way a church works and the way that a democracy works is that you know, in the court of law, if you are held to be at fault for something, you if you if somebody in the government is accused of actually stealing money. They're held accountable by law, and there is no partiality. You must pay for your crime. If somebody in the church happens to walk up to their pastor and goes, you know, I've noticed that, you know, this building phone over here that we've been working on for 30 years is the money is being misappropriated. I have a problem with the way these funds are being arranged. What happens? They are not treated equally. Their concerns are not held to that same standard. The members are told, to basically not talk down to the men of God. They are told to be in their place. They are told right. to not allow the voice of Satan to undermine their ministry. They are told all of these things. They are right. basically knocked down and told their, that their opinions don't matter. And the board, the church boards, are also told to basically look out for the brethren that if they slip up, they don't have to be punished. We ought to forgive them that we ought to cover the tracks, that we ought to smooth things over so that our finances don't look as bad as they actually are. Nobody is held accountable, and it's because of the way that the church is structured to right. basically keep people from actually having to be accountable. It's only very exactly. recently, and it's, it's only very recently, you know, and thanks to the media, when something happens um, – and a church has a scandal that's going on. They can't. They can't keep it within the church board. They can't keep it within the membership of pastors because those things right. have a way of getting out. And exactly. in the past, it took in the past it took a past a scandal within the church for a pastor to defect. In the past, it's actually taken anything up to suicide or a murder within the church when there has been discrepancies. It's actually gotten that bad within some of these churches, and it took that to actually get the church back in line and to reflect. And even in that scenario, what the church will say is that the devil is undermining our ministry. The devil is busy. We have to get back together. And because the way we were doing it, it didn't work this time, but maybe it'll work another time because God will find a way. Nobody is held accountable. Exactly. And our telephone number is 310-982-4273. And again, that's 310-982-4273. We're going to go into overtime. We only have two and a half minutes left. And so you need to dial in if you want to hear the rest of the show. Otherwise, it's going to cut you off. You're going to miss, you know, the rest of this wonderful conversation. So again, that number is 310-982-4273. Four two seven three. If you want to talk, press one. But you know, again, going back to you know, um, you got to hold them accountable. 
got to hold them accountable. Right. And, yeah, right. and, and they do need oversight, and they will get up there and start manipulating the words and intimidating members of, you know, the congregation with, you know, threatening. Yeah, exactly. That's not my and then they'll bring you to the back. And, you know, I've seen pastors cuss people out. You know, I've heard pastors, you know, call people out over the pulpit, or if they don't call you out by name, they'll they'll talk about exactly who they're talking about. And so I'm laughing because I'm, when I'm looking at some of these pastors, you know, because uh, some of them are going to say black people stayed at home, just like, you know, President Obama was saying that blacks and Latinos stayed at home and didn't come out, you know, to vote. Maybe those black folks were at home pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and not complaining, you know, too busy doing that to go vote, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) And then, to be honest with you, the Democrats, you know, know, I sat back and I watched these campaigns. They suck. Governor Quinn (laughs) lost, you know, Governor Quinn lost in Illinois. Because, yes, you know, a lot of, you know, you have some blacks voting Republicans, some Latinos voting Republicans, some people, you know, some people voted for the Libertarian candidate because there was a Libertarian candidate on the ballot. But for the most part, their their, their campaign sucked. You know, they were avoiding Barack Obama. It's interesting how the majority of them that lost, the Democrats that lost, they lost because they didn't want Barack Obama to come near their campaign. And and the ones that did embrace Barack Obama, they won. And so I, it's just it's the irony, the irony. So yeah. again, um, you know, we need to understand, you know, the reasons behind voter apathy, um, and and it's a very powerful message. And that is why, you know, we're telling people to go out and and, and research because you know our ancestors died for a number of things. You know, the ability to vote is, is is one of them. But, you know, they also died because they wanted us to prosper economically. You know, where is that black economic agenda? We need to have one. We need to have one. Where is black leadership? I did a show talking about, you know, black leadership and these self-appointed, self-anointed black leaders, you know, in our communities. And that is why I take my hat off to these millennials because they're saying, look, we ain't got time for all of that over there. Y'all do that over there, and we're going to get out here, and we're going to fight for justice. I never thought I'd see the day. I never thought I'd see the day when I would be out here, you know, you know, looking at these babies take charge. It's time. And unfortunately, Generation X and Y, we kind of failed you. We did. But, again, you know, some of that is based on many of us were, you know, sold on that American exceptionalism. Um, Unfortunately, many of us were told, you know, oh, but you're different. You're a different kind of Negro. You're not like those other Negroes over there. And some of us believed it. Some people still believe it. You know yeah. that that, that, and, that and we don't just and we don't just believe that. I would say, and uh-huh. we don't just believe that about our politicians. Um, right. We don't just believe that about our politicians. We also believe it um, within our own communities and within and just on a very human, simple level. You know, we just on every level um, within the black person's existence, 
um, in America, we always we're always told that like it, it was it's always insulting to me when I keep getting told that I don't act like any other black person they know, as if I should conform to a standard of behavior that they wouldn't hold themselves accountable to. Why should I not act like any other black person? What's wrong with right. the way black people act now that you're going to actually criticize it? And why hold me to and if And if you're really holding me to a higher standard, then why don't you hold everybody to a higher standard? Exactly. Exactly. And, 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 see, and, and, it's, about and it's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing because just, again, it's on every level. I can't tell you how many times I've heard just, Certain white people actually go on about and say, you know, and like, and they'll have conversations, you know, between their girlfriends. Like when I was in college, um, I was just sitting on a porch, you know, drinking a beer or whatever, and there's a bunch of white girls that are being very quiet, and they're saying stuff that I can actually hear, like, you know, you shouldn't date black guys because, that, you know, black guys do nothing but they cheat on their spouses, they leave their homes, they shit on women. And I heard it. And I gave them a look like, oh, but no, see, you you are special, Red Ninja. You are not like all those other guys. I'm like, right. what? Wait, I'm sorry. How many black guys <laughs> do you know that you're able to actually get away with saying that? Right. Where'd you get exactly. that information from? Exactly. It's very exactly. subtle racism and classism, whether you like and- it or not. Your best friend's still have perceptions about you as a black person that are false. They think they can get away with jokes. They think they can get away with calling you the exception of the rule as if it should be a rare thing that black men and women actually stand up for their communities and stand up and possess good values that raise families as if that's the exception as opposed to the rule that you just didn't get to observe. Exactly, exactly. And see what's interesting because you always hear me talking about um, some of these black nationalists, and they're nothing but white supremacists in black face, right? And you see right. them all over the place. Like I said, you know, some of them are hiding behind atheism, but that's another story. And, you know, I don't read them for points all year. But anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just sitting back, and what's interesting is, you know, that point that you made there is, you know, especially with, you know, with some of these black male, black nationalists. I want you all to understand. I want you to put it in context. I'm talking about black nationalists and black men that are part of that community. They want the same power and privilege that white males have. They want that white male privilege. They just want it for themselves while trying to, you know, continue to disenfranchise, you know, women and children. And that's why I look at the black nationalist community and, and some people in the conscious community, and I'm absolutely flabbergasted because, you know, I point out you're saying the same thing this Klansman is saying. Right. And when you start pointing it out to them, they're ready to fight. And they're saying, no, I'm not, yes, you are. Yes, you are. You know, one person in this community, you know, he says, if you're going to serve a God, don't serve the white one, serve the black one. But then I say, well, aren't you supposed to be an atheist? Or are you just playing one to get video hits? But anyway, so um, it's just, you know, the whole thing is interesting. 
But, you know, some of the things that, you know, they should be, if you're going to be, you know, politicking from the pulpit, like pastors, there are some things that you should be talking about. You should be talking about the public policy. You should be talking about black economics. You should be talking about ending capitalist exploitation of black communities and nations, not only in the United States, but look at what's happening over in Africa is being carved up, you know. You should be talking about decolonization. These are things that, you know, you should be talking about, not only in Africa, but over here. And it's interesting, since we're talking about Barack Obama, and he's talking about, you know, he's another one that pretty much believes that we should be out here bootstrapping. And then he turned around and said that we can't blame it on colonization anymore. So what do we blame it on, President? What do we name it on? You know, what what do we we call it? What's wrong? You know, they need to be talking about the prison industrial complex and talking about your past. If you're going to use that, you know, bully pulpit to politics, let's talk a politics about the right thing. But see, they don't want to talk about the But you know what, Kim? Uh Hey, Kim, but but we we can't talk about that because, you know, the world's going to end, Kim. And see, we can't. We, we we need to be persecuted, Kim. We can't have it because Jesus said that, you know, none of that matters uh-huh. because the world's going to end and he's going to rescue us from this filthy place and rapture us into heaven. And we all know how much better heaven is compared to this filthy, you know, sane, stained earth that we live it on. So we just need to wait for Jesus to come rescue us. Right. We, we can't. Right. Ha- we it, can't have. We can't have our communities be better because the community is not the end goal. Heaven is the end goal. Amen and hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. We're going to be rescued. Right. It, it, it's just. It's amazing because they're living. Some of them are living for the next life, and right. you know. And I, I want them to think about this while you're, you know, giving until it hurts. And you're giving it your all in all and going through the by and by and all of that stuff in regards to your religion. And, you know, your pastor is saying, but in the next life, you're going to, you know, live in a mansion and walk streets of gold. But, you know, they're spending their money and they're living good now. Why can't you? Why is it good enough for them but not good enough for you? Because, see, they want theirs now. And what's interesting, like I said, about the black good old boy network in in the religious community there, about them having the best cars, who has the baddest car, who has the, you know, the best jet, who has the most members and locations. Because I want you all to understand, you know, just like I talk shit about the secular community, it's the same thing happening in the religious community, which is why I always do a comparative analysis between the secular community and the religious community. There are parallels. And it is about the number of members. It is about the money coming in. You know, these people are professional salespeople. They're fundraisers. They're politicians. This is what they do. And it's about who has the best choice. And at the end of the day, you know, you start to question if they have, you know, any type of moral compass, especially the ones that Exactly. 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 And, and to be and, and then to be told that you subsequently, as a non-believer, can't know what morality is if you don't believe in their God. But they don't even believe that shit themselves. They don't. They don't believe in an ultimate, all-compassing, objective morality. 
like exactly. preachers of the, the show shows like preachers of LA should not exist if they believe that. Exactly. Prosperity exactly. gospel should not exist if they believe that. If they believe that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are working through them to provide them with the ultimate objective morality, then they should do what Jesus taught. Give away all your riches to the poor, stop buying Hummers, stop buying Cadillacs, and drive around in your cars while your members are starving. Give that shit away. Give it away. Exactly. Stop it. Exactly. It was interesting. You don't believe that. That's why you have to tell your parishioners to believe it. You don't because exactly. it benefits you. Exactly. And, you know, what's interesting is they'll tell their believers to basically forgive seven times 70, but God couldn't forget them after they ate a fig. Really? Adam and Eve after they ate one piece of fruit? I mean, so, I mean, I want you all to think about this because, see, what they do is they exploit those scriptures. And what I mean by that is is that, you know, you know, Pastor Gilliard down in Florida, was convicted of, you know, being a sex offender. He had sex with an underage girl at his church. She got pregnant. And at first he denied it. He denied it, but she got pregnant. Her family turned against her to side with the pastor because she would not abort the baby. They wanted her to abort the baby so that it wouldn't get out, but everybody turned against her. She was taken out of that home and placed that she had that child Gilliard went to jail. He went to jail, and he got out of jail, and a church that's only, you know, a couple of miles away from his old church brought him in as the pastor because Gilliard had turned that other church into a megachurch. And this smaller church wanted to become a megachurch, so they knew he knew what to say and how to attract people to that church. And what happened was he was a registered sex offender, so he could not be within the vicinity of children. They banned the children from the church and put the kids over at another children's church or what have you, and and then eventually they um, they figured out the legalities behind that, and they were able to bring the children back into the church. But I'm saying, you know, you have pastors out here that have murdered folks, you know, you know went to jail two, three times. I'm telling you, when, when these guys come out of jail, you know, they have their pastor friends who hook them up. I've seen this happen. And and, and yeah. I'm like, and we are telling you about it, and you don't believe it. You know, many stories are out here. See, that's the thing. The technology is what is helping the church implode. Having the Internet and this technology in which we can share these stories, because, see, back in the day, they can get in the pulpit and say, well, those are just rumors, and touch that mind anointed. Exactly. If you weren't here, you don't know. But now these stories are coming out. People are getting arrested. Absolutely. People are, you know, forming support groups, bringing up blogs, telling the story. We ain't letting up on them, you know, because, you know, exactly. there are sometimes you go for the jugular. And the thing is, is that if they really believed, like they said that they believed, and if they really were anointed by the Holy Spirit and, you know, they were anointed and appointed by God, then why do some of them, not all of them, but why do some of them continue with their criminal behavior and then will tell you, don't judge me, judge ye, lest ye not be judged, you know, and they will tell you all these things, and yet they continue with the behavior, and each act gets more egregious. You had the one pastor that admitted in the pulpit that he had slept with several members of his church and had knowingly passed them HIV, knowingly passed them HIV. 
the you have these pastors committing suicide, you all need to start asking yourselves why. What has happened? What is happening? And I'm telling you all, just from what I know and what I've seen, you know, you have a lot of pastors out here that have substance abuse issues, whether it's drugs or alcohol, a combination thereof. And, you know, some of them are sex addicts. I mean, you all need to pay attention to what's happening. You know, I know one particular church that has a pastor, and if it hasn't started yet, it's going to start up soon, but... I think he's gonna, you know, pick up an old habit of his. It's gonna be interesting watch this, watching this church go down. And it doesn't even have to be that serious. And you know, some it doesn't even have to be to that level. A lot of these pastors right. themselves are also warning against psychological treatment for these same exact issues. They're told to get Christian exactly. counseling. They're told to get counseling from biblical authorities. They're told to pray all of these things away. They can't go to right. secular counseling. They can't go to psych. They can't go to psychologists. They can't go to therapists unless they're church approved because to actually right. say that a non-church, a non-church indoctrinated therapist or a secular therapist to go to somebody like that outside of the church authority is to say that they are more powerful than God. They are more powerful exactly. than the work of the Holy Spirit. And many of the pastors believe that about themselves. They believe it exactly. about themselves. And they will not do it because they, in their minds, what they're saying is that the Bible is not as powerful as man is. Reading the exactly. word of God, quote unquote, is not as powerful as sitting down one on one with a qualified professional and actually working one on one with actual treatments, not praying it away, not pleading the Holy Spirit, not arguing and demanding Satan to leave. None of that shit is working. None of it is fixing my depression issue. I have to actually work on it. It really is up to me. It's not up to an invisible spirit that you've never seen. It's up to me. Exactly, exactly. And then I want you all to understand that, you know, quite a few of these pastors, you know, they use these Jedi mind tricks on people, but many of them do study psychology. Now, you need to understand that, and you need to ask yourselves why so that they can control you and control and manipulate. And I'm not saying all of them are. There are some there are some people out here, some God fearing people out here that are for the community, you know, grandma and grandpa over there in that storefront that, you know, you know, take their little bit of money and make food and make sure everybody can eat after the service because they know that there are some people in that congregation, you know, some of the, especially some of those babies, that's the only food, the only time they really get some meals when they go to school. That's why I say, you know, um, people point the finger at the Black Panther program, but, you know, when they implemented that breakfast program, you know, that was genius. And it was adopted by the school system, but I also believe that these school systems should have um, food available for these kids after school for dinner. They can just pick something up for themselves and take it home. And if they have brothers or sisters, pick up enough to take home. Because some of these children are starving, which is why they're not learning, which is why, you know, you have some of the issues, you know. And, again, this is why I'm looking at some of these pastors and, you know, with this pulpit politicking, why aren't you, you know, going after the cause? Why are you highlighting the symptoms? If you go to the root cause of the problems, many of these symptoms will go away. It's going to take some time, yeah. but they will go away. 
But, you know, you're too busy with this damn respectability politics. You know, how are you telling these young men that, you know, is oh, telling them that they're quote-unquote thug culture, you know, so now they don't want to just say black people and, you know, uh, and, 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 you know, they, they they call it a cultural issue now. That's just a fancy way of being racist, a fancy way of putting it. And, you know, with the respectability politics, you know, these pastors should be up there talking about the policies. Because, you know, earlier we were talking about, um, we were talking about, you know, what is happening. Oh, we were talking about affirmative action. And I was talking about how the white people get the majority of affirmative action. And I would segue into, you know, the New Deal and how that was brought about and how, Blacks went from voting Republican to voting Democrat because in order for the New Deal to get passed, he, you know, the president, FDR, needed the, the Democratic, the Dixiecrats to vote. So basically what they did was they took those funds, the money from the New Deal, and instead of it being implemented by the federal government, they passed them down to the states. And this is why you hear them always talking about states' rights, because with the states, when they received that money, they were able to do their own administration of those funds and basically determine who was eligible. And this is how black people were shut out of these programs like welfare. Welfare was mm-hmm. developed and implemented for white women, particularly white women who were married to soldiers who were sent overseas to war, you know, and, and, and you know, um, you know, Social Security. You know, it took a while for, you know, black people to be able to get that. For a long time, domestic workers as well as um, agrarian or agricultural workers were excluded from Social Security, you know. And so I just want you to go back. But, again, it's these policies, and some of these policies are still on the book. And, unfortunately, we're helping them to implement even more policies. I know some people are like, why are you so against charter schools? Because public school, you know, it it has not been proven that charter schools are better than public schools. It's about them privatizing education. And we see how that went ever as college graduates, you know, and and these other, you know, poor and also notice how well it's going down in Louisiana because the thing, the other thing about charter schools is that just like a lot of churches, they don't really have a lot of oversight because they're private corporations. They can teach whatever they want. And, exactly. you know, in the state of Louisiana, um, not only is Louisiana extremely creationist um, in terms of its winnings, but they are young earth creationists. And there have actually been news articles about the charter schools that, like, Governor Bobby Jindal has actually been overseeing and, of course, Bobby Jindal is an extreme right-wing Christian creationist. And they actually had books that showed that the Loch Ness Monster was real and, therefore, evolution was false. And they're actually right. teaching these to middle school and, and high school students blatantly. Yeah. And they can exactly. teach them anything and everything that they want. And in the state of Texas – these same charter schools are also trying to whitewash the history of slavery and saying right. that, you know, you know, slavery was the best thing that could have happened to the black people because they had no other options. Bullshit. Bullshit. We had plenty of options before you put us in a slavery position, before you brought us over. And, then, you know, oh, yeah. And that's another, I, man, I could, Kim, I could rant all day about how much our black people are misinformed, but 
that's another thing. One thing we always hear a lot from, you know, black people is, well, we had it, we had it really hard during slavery, but we had it even worse in Africa. We had no economy in Africa. We were just eating each other, and we had we were in bushwhack communities. We weren't doing a damn thing. Again, that's bullshit. There, and even now, right. people will still say, I don't want to go back to Africa. Africa's a shithole. No, it's the shithole that the American media wants you to see. There are plenty of prosperous exactly. African communities as well. And there are plenty of things exactly. that Africa still has that are – and you know what? It's funny to me, like, how we don't want to go back to Africa, but we'll go back to Africa's diamond mines. We'll go back to Africa's chocolate and cocoa factories. We'll go back for all of Africa's natural resources, but we'll still, at the same time, say that Africa has nothing to offer us. They have no communities. They have no way right. of stabilizing that. But it's only because America has destabilized uh-huh. Africa and our Western powers right, have right, destabilized right. the resources that they have. So it's all exactly. about your perspective and what you are willing to actually investigate and see. Exactly, and that's the reason why, you know, um, we talk about these things because, you know, Johannesburg is like, you know, a mini New York City. It's almost as big as New York City, and, you know, people need to understand not everybody over there, you know, fighting off the damn big-ass flies, you know. (laughs) They put forth these images on television for a purpose, you know, to, to, to to encourage people to kind of look at Africa in a kind of, you know, sort of way. And what's happening even now with the Ebola is just a small microcosm. Over there in West Africa, people don't, you know, they don't realize how big that continent is. Africa is a continent. It's not a country. It's a continent. But, um, again, you know, what's interesting is, and I want people to, to catch this, I want you to get it, a lot of these pastors, particularly these white pastors, own diamond mines over in Africa. They own, um, you know, some of the excavation for, you know, the gold over in Africa. Some of them own, you know, um, um, mineral rights, and some of them own, um, you know, oil drilling rights in Africa. See, that's the, that's the secret. A lot of people don't realize that there is oil in Africa. They're drilling over in Kenya now, and some of your pastors right. are invested in this. They are invested in it. You need to know where your pastor's money or the church money is going. It's your money. And don't give me right. that. You gave it so you know, you gave freely, so it's up to God, it's between them and God. Well no, you living right now. And your children are, you know, being neglected by the system and not getting everything that they're fully entitled to because, right. you know, your communities are being robbed. And also, if you go back to that scripture that, you know, they like to quote Malachi 3 and 8, go to the beginning of the scripture and read that, you know, the little italicized part before the scripture, and you will see that God was talking to the priests. He was not talking yes. to the people. He was not talking to the lay people. So when they say, well, a man robbed God, when, what that scripture is doing is talking to the priests because um, the priests, you know, the, the Levitical priests had fallen down right. on the job. And basically, you know, they were violating, you know, the methodology that had been put in place 
you know, in order for them to collect tithes and offerings. And, again, it was on agrarian goods. It was agricultural goods. Tithes was never meant to be money. But, again, you got to exactly. go back and read that and put it in context if you're going to believe it. So when they're talking about, well, a man robbed God, it was not God talking to the people. It was God talking to the priests. Exactly. And, exactly, and, and you know, the other thing that people forget about that, too, is that it, the majority of that, the majority of those offerings were to be brought to the storehouse. They didn't belong to anything else but Levitican priests. It belonged only in the Jewish synagogues only. And it's interesting, too. I've actually watched YouTube videos of pastors actually trying to explain this and saying, yeah, you know what? Ties are the, the Old Testament. And if we're going to say that the Old Testament doesn't really count and that the New Testament is what counts, well, then we have to get rid of tithing. We have to get rid of that because right. we have to actually place them in the cultural context. And we should only be doing it out of love. We should only be offering and giving freely. We should not be imposing a 10%. And by the way, I ask believers, where do you see 10% in the Bible? Where right. do you see a percentage being asked of you in the Bible? And right. You're, I mean, you're going, to say, you're going to sit here and tell me you believe in the word of God. Ask the word of God where 10% is. And then come back and right. tell me that I'm supposed to get my ten percent. Guess what? Exactly. You won't find but, it. Oh, but 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 wait, but this scripture says over here that it says this. Okay, yeah. Read those other verses. It says the exact opposite of what you're saying. You are not exactly. being scripturally accurate. Exactly. But then in addition to that, the tithe that were that was brought into the storehouse that was taken to the church, that tithe, that food was to go for the priests because they were not allowed to have jobs. They were not allowed to own businesses like some of your pastors right. do. That money was brought right. in to take care of priests and the widows and the orphans. And any child that did not have a father was considered an orphan. That's what that money was for. But instead, nowadays, you see a lot of these churches, you know, um, basically being predatory over, you know, some of these older women, some of these senior citizens. And, you know, we need to be out here protecting these older people, not exploiting them. That's that's not what right. it's supposed to be about. And you see a lot of that, but it's a lot of things that they've twisted, and you need to hold them to account. You need to hold them to account because they have it all wrong. If you're going to believe in that, you know, at least put it in a proper context. But going back to what you were saying about, you know, um, the charter schools being privately owned, yeah, they can teach anything. They were teaching that the slaves were happy, and basically it was like, you know, um, a work program. You know, you know right. like sometimes it's and it's, a program. And it's, too, and it's interesting, too, that these same pastors will use that same defense for the slavery in the Bible. Right. Oh, well, you know, those, you know, those Canaanites, you know, they were just being enlisted for work. It was indentured servitude. It wasn't really slavery. And it was the best thing for them because just like your old African ancestors, those Canaanites were, they were dirty. They were awful. They needed to be civilized. And little wonder that we are told the same thing about our African ancestors before we were brought here to America. Oh, those Africans right. needed to be civilized because without that, they were murdering each other and doing all this and keeping their people in slavery. Okay, even if that were true, even if you're going to say that African systems were keeping people into slavery, which to an extent is true, even if you're actually going to say that, 
those slaveries, those particular slavery periods and those contracts were still being negotiated between them. It was not lifetimes full of slavery. And you know what? Even if it was, I still wouldn't defend them because any version of slavery is wrong. Owning another human being is wrong simply because you are robbing the primacy of that person. So even if it were, if that were the case, guess what? I can still condemn that and say that was wrong. You are not allowed to condemn the Bible when it says that slavery is right. And it's interesting that pastors use that defense to defend both Africans being brought over to America and the Canaanites being brought over to the Hebrew culture to be slaves. It's the exact same rhetoric. It's not a coincidence, people. It's not exactly. a coincidence. It's biblical. And I also want to, exactly. And I want them to pay attention because, again, they're looking at the slaves and they're looking, you know, at them as objects, objects to be owned, you know, chattel. And unfortunately, with the patriarchal religious system that we live under, this is one of the reasons why many of these pastors hate feminists, because basically they're being forced to not objectify their wives and women. And and to understand that you won't own these women. And, you know, again, you know, the majority of the people that go to these churches are women. And for the most part, in many households, it's the women that control the checkbook, that control the finances, you know, and and even though that's been changing over the years. But, um, you know, again, objectifying, controlling women, controlling their money, controlling what they do, what they think, and to a certain extent, who they marry. Um, someone posted an article on my wall in which a woman was stating that the church cheated her out of a husband and children. And, again, you know, some of these churches are cults, and we just need for you to understand, you know, you need to have autonomy in your life. And if your pastor does not believe that you are a whole person, that you are, you know, not owned by anybody, that you are, you know, you have agency over yourself, if he doesn't believe that, you don't need to be under him because you are under a male chauvinist pig. And unfortunately, you have right. a lot of that in community. And unfortunately, and this is something that I've asked women because I've, I've seen some Christian feminists, and at first, you know, just the term Christian feminist, you know, made me chuckle a little bit. I'll just be honest. But the fact that they're putting forth an effort and that they're having the conversations, I can't take that away from them. So I encourage those sisters to go on. But, you know, what's interesting is there are still a lot of men in the church that still tell women that they should not and cannot be preachers and they can't bring forth the word of God. You need to be asking yourselves why. Why don't they want you up there? Why don't they want you, you know, hearing and seeing? And it's just the whole thing is really interesting. When you put it all in context and you you step out of it, now that we're not into religion anymore and we're secular and, you know, pretty much, you know, uh, pretty set in our secularism, we're on the outside looking in. And I know I'm like saying I can't believe that I allowed myself to get sucked back into this. In my late twenties, going into my thirties, I'm like, you know, I, you know, I stopped believing at eleven, twelve, but you know, some friends convinced me. I got sucked back in, but actually, one part of me says that was the worst thing that could have happened, but the other part of me says, no, it was the best thing that could have happened because, you know, initially I was looking at these things like they said through the eyes of a child, and a lot of these children are smarter than these adults. But then as I got older, I went back and gave it a try and saw it through the eyes of an adult with experience under her belt. 
And after I saw what was really going on behind the scenes and what was really happening, you know, you know, if I can go back in time, I would tell my 11, 12-year-old, stick to this cause. Don't let them suck you back into this time warp. Don't, you know, and, and stick yeah. to it because it's, it's just it's really interesting. But I got a chance to see a lot of this stuff up close and personal and that's why I'm sitting back and I'm just laughing at it because, you know, one particular old pastor of mine, you know, is like, um, you know, he's a little upset that, you know, I'm out here and, you know, have this podcast. And, of course, you know, his son, who's a Christian mind, you know, I'm like, is that a Christian? Well, no, they call themselves anointed minds. And got a little upset when I called him a Christian clown, but that's another story. But, you know, um, you know, they're upset at the fact that I'm out here and that people are listening because I honestly believe that, you know, the majority of my audience are, you know, white secularists and black Christians. That's the majority of my audience, which is interesting. And also, and also, um, Closet atheists and agnostics who are Christians in public and who are atheists and agnostics in private and who don't think that there are black people like you and me out there who openly reject Christianity and religion outright as a viable alternative, they don't think we exist. But right. now that there's a podcast called Black Freethinkers, they can know <laughs> that we exist. They can know that they are not alone. Right. That right. what they're thinking exactly. in private and what they are forced to keep their mouths shut about in public is not just an outrageous opinion, and they are not a minority. They are not alone. They do have exactly. people that are on their side that are asking the same questions that a lot of them are forbidden to. And in a lot of cases, there are times when you, as a closet atheist or an agnostic, basically have to note out of there and have the courage to actually literally walk away from the church and not go back. It takes strength to do that. It took strength exactly. for me to do that. It took three months for me to do that. And it took constant right. pleas from so many people within my family and friends to just give it one more chance, one more shot. What are you going to lose? You know, it takes, right. it, and it's just, it hurts and it's painful, but you have to do it because if you don't stand for something, you will fall for anything. Exactly. Exactly, and that's absolutely the truth, and that's why, you know, I said this journey is not the easiest journey, especially when you're pulling away and you're breaking away and you're getting, um, you know, more resolve or more established in your resolve that, you know, you don't really believe all of this stuff. And, you know, again, you know, it's, it's a lot of cognitive dissonance there, especially if you were raised in a church and you're like, why would mama and them lie to me? You know, you're, you're, exactly. you're just thinking like, why did they do this? Exactly. Why did they take do this? And then certain decisions that, you know, your your family made based on religion, and some of those decisions may have had a negative effect on your life. And you're like, wait a minute, so wait a minute. When she decided to do A, B, and C because of the church, and so I wasn't able to do X, Y, and Z because we needed to do A, B, and C, but if I had done X, Y, and Z, you know, I would have been able to do this in life, and I would be a little bit more ahead possibly, you know. And, you know, and you right. start trying not to get bitter. You, you try not to resent, you know, and then you have people, friends, family coming around, and, you know, they're still kind of, you know, um, battering at you 
to they're trying to convince you to come back to the church and to give it another try, and you're like, no, and it's unfortunate, but in some cases, you know, the families have turned against, you know, the people, you know, their own relatives, and it's hard. Right. And, yeah, and we'll tell you, it's not easy out here, and you're definitely not alone, and that's why, you know, sometimes I get pissed off when I hear, you know, some white atheists ask black people or black atheists, what does it feel like to be a black atheist? And, you know, I want to respond. I've never been a white atheist, so I can't really compare. But, you know, if you're right. looking at it, you know, the standpoint of having an unpopular position, I'm like, you've seen, you know, what happens, you know, you, you know, basically, you have to learn how to do everything all over. It's like a renewal, you know, a life renewal process because some of the places you used to go, well, you can't go there anymore because, you know, it's religious. And they're going to say, well, you're no longer a believer. Why are you coming to the church fish fry? Why are you coming to the church barbecue, you know, unless you were invited by someone and then they want to take that time out to witness to you so you can't enjoy your ribs, right? But, you know, right. you have to change language because a lot of the language in, you know, Western culture is based on, you know, on on, on religion. So, you know, because, I mean, right. I still catch myself on my car sliding across the freeway on some ice. You know, I'm like, Jesus, and then, you know, I start a whole long damn cussing. But, you know, but, you know the first thing they use <laughs> you know, like, oh, shit, Jesus, please don't let me hit that car. It's like, you know, you know. <laughs> and Kim, yeah. and, and the thing is, that's not a coincidence either. Um, the, the fact, the fact of the matter is, is that that programming is very deliberate. Um, there's actually yeah. a book out there called The God Virus by Daryl Ray, and it's one of my all-time favorite books because it actually breaks down how religious language has basically programmed us without us even really even realizing it, and exactly. how religious mindsets about topics like. There's another book that Daryl Ray wrote, and Daryl Ray is the bomb. I, if anybody's out there and hasn't heard of him, look that guy up. He's amazing. Yeah, he's, like, he's great. He's been on the show before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah I read his bring book called... Show. But, yeah, no, we need to oh, talk yeah, about he, you know, vocabulary yeah, yeah, like he, and the explanation. Absolutely. And, like, he – and one of his books called Sex um, – one of his books called Sex and God – he actually talks about how even like most atheists and most non-religious people are still plagued by ideas that are religious in nature. And, you know, not just about language, but about their sexuality as well. And about ideas behind, you know, the LGBT community. And this kind of circles back to a conversation that we continually have about homophobia within the secular and atheist community. Um, And the fact that there are still atheists that are still, infected with religious ideas about sexuality and about the situation regarding pro-life versus pro-choice and, you know, all of these things, they are still, they have yet to let go of religious preconceptions about right. topics at large within the world. And exactly. it's unfortunate, but it just shows you how well the Christian program, um, the Christian matrix, so to speak, has basically work its way into our culture. Exactly. And how much of and exactly. how much of a mountain we have to climb to overcome that. 
Yeah, it's interwoven into the fabric of this country, into the fabric of, you know, our lives. You know, I'm not doing a commercial thing there, y'all, not that. But, but you know, it is. It's interwoven. It's, it's within the fabric of, you know, everything that we know, and that was done on purpose, like you said. And, you know, it's interesting because, like I said, you don't want to miss the webcast next Sunday. It's going to be on at 10 o'clock Pacific, which is noon central, which is 1 o'clock on Eastern Standard Time. You all need to go and subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is People of Color Beyond Faith. Just look up People of Color Beyond Faith YouTube, and you'll find it subscribed to our channel because we're going to be talking about, you know, um, corporatizing, you know, secularism and, and, and regular white guy status. It's going to be a really, really good conversation, and, you know, I'll be remiss if I don't say this, Whenever the Ferguson um, grand jury decision is, I'm going to have a show that night. So, you know, hopefully it won't come back tonight because I'm all talked out, y'all. But if it comes (laughs) comes tomorrow, if it comes out tomorrow, if the grand jury comes back with whatever decision, you know, whether it's tomorrow or, you know, Tuesday or Wednesday, I'm definitely going to do a show that night so we can talk about it and and put that because I'm not going to do a show next Sunday because I'm going to be doing the webcast. And so, uh, knowing me, I may decide to put something together, you know, but if I don't, you know, I'm letting you know ahead of time. But whenever that grand jury comes back with that decision, that night we're going to have a show. And, you know, we want everybody to have a soft place to land. We want to let you know that you have a voice, that your opinion matters, and, you know, we want you to call in with your feelings and, you know, I know I'm I'm switching off subject a little bit, but I just think it's important because, you know, part of this is part of, you know, pulpit politicking and why aren't the black pastors out here talking about it? Jamal Bryant, Pastor Jamal Bryant of Empowerment Temple over there in Baltimore, Maryland, he took himself down to Ferguson and he calls himself leading the young folks because he wants to be the next Martin Luther King Jr. with all those illegitimate children all over Baltimore he has. Allegedly. And, um, wow. you know, there's some stuff I can tell you about some of these folks. is a trip. Anyway, um, they need to be talking about what's happening down in Ferguson, but a lot of these pastors and preachers, they're ignoring it. You know, they're they're ignoring, you know, the consequences of this. Let's say the jury decides that they're not going to indict that police officer. We don't know what the hell is going to happen. You know, just like we didn't know what was going to happen with Trayvon's case with Zimmerman, you know, getting off and and whatever happens with this. We're not sure what's going to happen, but for them to be sending National Guard helicopters to Ferguson, it don't seem like it's going to be all that positive. And you all have seen how they shut down the Internet access. They shut down the cable communications in Ferguson, when all of this is happening, they um, implemented a no-fly zone so that the media couldn't see what was happening. You know, and, and, and I find it ironic that in this country, you know, we were, you know, encouraging some of the protesters in other countries to overthrow, you know, their their, their governments and, and, and all of that while still oppressing, you know, um, people of color, namely black people in this country. And they don't want that to get out. And the fact that, you know, the U.N. sent representatives to Ferguson, that right there, that spoke volumes. You know, you all need to go back and do some research. And then the U.N. 
turned around and, you know, indicted America. You know, it was, it was not indicted as far as, you know, taking them to court, but basically, you know, said to America that they need to work on this racism, this white supremacy, that we need to deal with that particular issue because this is a racist-ass country. There is no way to put it, you know. I mean, no other way for me to put it because what's interesting is, and I want you all to listen, if you don't get anything else off this, you know, conversation, I wanted you to get the point earlier, and I want you to get this. What's interesting is when other people from other countries come to America, they come, you know, somewhat with an open mind unless they've had a lot of the television shows um, from America on in their particular countries. But in many of these countries, they don't have the racial issues or the racialized politics that we have in America. So when they come to America, they, they see things, you know, they just see people pretty much as people. Now, you know, um, you have colorism and colonization all over the world. There are issues with that, you know, everywhere. But when they come to this country, one of the things that they are taught is if they convey anti-blackness and they oppress black people, then they become more acceptable. And many of them, you know, are then moved into the Venn diagram of ethnic white. And so it's just really interesting that you all need to pay attention to that because, I mean, I've posted a lot of articles, but I want you all to go and look up, you know, um, anti-blackness and, and, and how that's rewarded, um, you know, by being, you know, moved into that ethnic white, you know, category, and they don't even realize that that's a trick. It's a trick because they need yeah. for you to feel as though you are superior to blacks and for you to continue to oppress blacks and have this anti-blackness so that you won't go after them because they are the ruling class. But if they give you some semblance of power, some semblance of superiority, then you would do their dirty work for them. And you don't even realize that you're being used. So don't fall for yeah. that bullshit. Tell it. And I want to come back to a point you made earlier about um, – about foreigners often being able to see America in a much franker light and right. particularly observing um, the warpedness of racism within America. This went, this goes all the way back to reports that were made in the middle of the 19th century by Alexis de Tocqueville. Um, I don't know if you remember that name, but he was a famous political scientist and a political thinker that wrote um, what's called Democracy in America, um, it was an entire volume of work, and it observed, you know, all of the things that made America unique within the 19th century. And one of the things that Alexis de Tocqueville picks up on is, you know, the racial segregation within America, and he notes that very frequently this is a system that is put in place deliberately because of the ideals that were in the American Constitution at the time, and that this is not a situation – that happens very frequently outside of North America in general at that particular time. So he was right. very frank. And there were a lot of people that were very angry with Mr. Tocqueville um, when he pointed out the flaws within both the capitalist society at large and within their so-called democratic ideals within America, and especially in regards to slavery and especially in regards to the slave trade and the economic system at large. He was able to write very frankly that these are major changes that need to be done. And the thing, democracy in America was almost banned 
because it put America right. in a bad light. And this goes back centuries. This is not the first time that this happened. Nobody's. This is not a unique observation for anybody exactly. that wants to get angry at what we're saying. Exactly. Um, uh, I'm looking at information up now because, um, yeah, that article, The Economist, has a slavery problem. And you can find that on thenation.com. So Economist uh, magazine, which is, you know, a right-wing magazine, they basically, uh, they reviewed a book, and they just totally slammed that book because in this book, <laughs> the author made sure that, you know, uh, you know, was talking about slavery, and he was talking about how the capitalist system was created, America's capitalist system was created, and it thrives on, you know, um, uh, on slavery. That is how this country was created, and then, you know, the um, the fruit of the labor of the slaves is, you know, that is still what makes this country, you know, turn and makes this country functional. The name of the book is The Empire of Necessity, Slavery, Freedom, and Deception in the New World. Again, The Empire of Necessity, Slavery, Freedom, and Deception in the New World. I haven't picked this book up yet, but I was, re- you know, reading a lot of the reviews on it, and The Economist was not happy because this gentleman talked about how capitalism is built on racism. He broke it down, and he did not make the white slave owners seem like, well, they were really nice guys. They were Christian. Right. It was just a business. You know, he, he didn't do that. So, you know, they tore him a new ass. And so I want you guys to go and look that up. But I was just giving them another book that was kind of in line with the one that you were talking about there. Because, you know, whenever you say anything about capitalism and you say anything about how our economy and our wealth was built on slavery, built on the black on the back of black people, and continues to be built on the back of black people, because there's a reason why they care about you know your children when they're a fetus, but don't give a shit about your kid once you push it out. There's a reason right. they need and people to to be you know, they need servants. They need people to work the service industry. They and again, like we said earlier, we were talking about the economics just, you know, on a macro scale there. It is by design that a certain percentage of our population is underemployed and unemployed. Go ahead, Brent. Oh no, I was gonna say, um in you know, in regards to the topic of, you know, pro life organizations, none of them are pro life. Mm-hmm. They don't even get right. to call themselves pro-life because they're not pro-life. They're pro-birth. If they were really pro-life, they would be for Obamacare. They would be about improving our health and education system, but they're not pro-life. They're pro-birth, and they're pro-punishing women. Right. They are pro-punishing females. They are pro-putting people in their place, putting right. women in their place. And it's by design, and it is a religious mechanism. Exactly. And it's a religious mechanism. It is essentially mm-hmm. to say that because the Bible says that you ought to be punished for your sin, if sex outside of marriage is a sin and you only got pregnant because of sex outside of marriage and you don't want that kid, well, we have to punish you. It's not about 
it's not just about trying to protect life within the womb, which they have a very peculiar definition of life within the womb, considering that it's a ton, it's a bunch of cells at the beginning that's no bigger than a fly's cells during the first two or three weeks of gestation. But you know that's another whole different topic. Um, but anyway, right. you know they have a peculiar way of defining life, you know, at conception. But okay. Let's take that logic all the way and say that, all right, if you're pro-life and you want to save every kid, what are you doing to protect the life that's already here? So let's say Mm -hmm. we we keep that woman from actually getting an abortion and we allow that woman to give birth to her child. Now, let's say this woman is black and this woman has been raped by her father. And this happens, right? It's not an outrageous situation. I've seen it within my own family. But exactly. a black woman gets raped by someone within the family. You force her to have that child. Number one, how do you deal on a fundamental level with the PTSD that's involved when she has to look into the face of her rapist every time she looks at her child? Number one. Number two. That's right. Number two, what programs are you putting in place to keep that woman fed and that child fed and within a reasonable means of taking care of that family. Do you have economic programs? Do you have health programs? Do you have food programs? Do you have tuition assistance if that woman needs to go to school like you want her to to get an education? Right. Right. Right? What uh-huh. are you doing? But the Republicans are hands off. Hey, you gotta get you gotta rise it by your own bootstraps. Well here's the thing, boss, she'd be able to if she didn't have that child. Exactly. Exactly. And see, you know, again, that's why we have to have It's about punishing that woman, whether it's warranted or not. It could not have been because of an outrageous, abusive situation within her family. It could not have been even because she wasn't even made aware of birth control in the first place because you kept it from her. No, it can't be because of that. It's because she's a sinner and she's living in sin and she has to be punished for that quote unquote sin. Of having that baby, of sleeping around. And you know what? That's true. And you know what's interesting about that is, you know, I used to have this blog up, and I talked about um, basically, and I was talking about black, you know, Christians, and how you know many of them forced their daughters, even though it took a young man or an old man and, and a woman to to make a baby. But with some of these young girls, some of these young girls are forced to have children that they do not want. And the parents, you know, try to say it's because we don't believe in abortion or they'll say that God will supply and all of that. No, they're forcing that child to have that baby as a punishment because they were forced to have their children as punishment. As a and punishment, it exactly. A yeah, it's a perpetual cycle. And you know, I had a few people get pretty upset with me about that, but I'm like, it's true. That's the only thing that makes any sense. You're punishing her. You're punishing her for having sex. You're punishing her for enjoying sex. And, and, and again, it's not stopping anything, but what I will say, and I want to make sure people understand this, is that the um, childbirth rate for um, black women or young girls, teenagers, is going down. It's actually going down. So, um, you know, that's something to think about. And, and again, it, it's just interesting because, you know, what a lot of people aren't taking into consideration is that there aren't 
Planned Parenthoods on every block in black neighborhoods. I mean, I, it's very few, if any, in many of the black neighborhoods here in Chicago. And then with them fighting the Affordable Care Act with the birth control provisions and all, there's a reason for it, people. And I just want you all to pay attention and to understand. We got two minutes before it cuts us off. I would like to thank Red Ninja for calling in. I'd like to thank Raina. Um, this is a great conversation, everybody. Enjoy it. Enjoy the archives. And next week, again, more than likely, no show Sunday unless it's just some real good fuckery that happens this week, and I got to talk about it. But just <laughs> 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 Man, you just don't know some of the stuff, you know, that's going on. It's just outrageous. But, you know, when they do come back with the grand jury decision for Ferguson, you can rest assured that we're going to do a show that night unless they do it tonight. Kim Todd, baby, I'll, I'll do it tomorrow. But you, you all can call in and, um, you know, and, and, and talk about it, you know, because I am afraid of what could happen, I don't think is going to be, you know, riots. I don't believe that. That's not going to happen. It's, it's not going to be riots. And then also for the people that were talking about Ferguson, it wasn't the black people that were down there rioting. It wasn't the black people that lived in the area rioting. It was the white college students that called themselves anarchists. They were the ones throwing the Molotov cocktails. They were the ones throwing... Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.